You are listening to Radio Cosmos, and it is now 5 p.m. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Are you sure you want to do it? My movie. <laughs> what is it? I don't know what it's called. What is it called? Kevin. Dylan. You ready? Son of a bitch. You're trying to tell me that I can dodge bullets? The wrong side of the river! I'm Michael George. Stop it. Get some help. Tony Mona, the terrorists had the president's daughter in the old bean factory. I can't get drunk today. Too bad. You Affected by deadly toxins from cancer-infested rats. Despicable. Despicable. Billy, what's his name, show? This is Greg Sestero, and you are listening to My Movies Better. Thugs. Stanley's Magic Garden. Oh, damn. See, I thought you said Stan Lee's <laughs> Magic <laughs> Garden. So it was like, hey, true believers, it's Stan Lee. Uh, oh, God. I'm old, and actually, I'm dead now. This is my horrible Stan Lee impression. <laughs> hey, true believers. <laughs> Uh, that's great. Stanley's Great Adventure. Stan, yeah, Stanley's. Stanley's Magic Garden. Stanley's Magic Garden. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 30th episode of My Movies Better. I am Kevin. I'm Dylan. And we are here today to talk to you about a little era I grew up in called the 1990s. Yeah, man. Fucking the 90s. Anyway. (laughs) I existed. Yeah, moving (laughs) moving right along. Uh, Michael Jordan was king of the world. Wayne Gretzky was his grand vizier. Uh, Everybody was eating McDonald's. Bill Clinton was having sex with Monica Lewinsky. And uh, at that time, Nintendo 64 and PlayStation (laughs) were out. You were playing Metal Gear Solid. Hell yeah, you were. Yes. So you guys, the fans, the listeners, you guys picked this uh, for our, uh, our episode as a sequel. We did 90s movies. I did a 90s movies episode with my buddy Derek a while ago where we covered Jurassic Park, Troll 2, and Jack Frost um, <laughs> starring Michael Keaton. So we're back to cover some more 90s movies. Yeah. So this week we have on deck The Player. Chungking Express and the Fifth Element. And but before we get to that, we're gonna start off things like we always do with the weird movie of the week. And this one goes out uh, especially to my friend Jenna, who picked this movie in I think in the poll. What? Yeah, for this. She wanted us to do Stan Lee's Great Adventure, <laughs> aka Stanley's Magic Garden. Stanley's Magic Garden. <laughs> Stan Lee's Troll in Central Park, not starring Stan Lee. Yeah, a troll troll in Central Park. Yes, it's a 1994 American animated musical fantasy comedy film directed by Don Bluth, the great animator Don Bluth, and Gary Goldman, the creators of their previous animated films, Rockadoodle. Which was close for the weird movie. it was. Very close. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Uh, The Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven, The Secret of Nim, and An American Tale. Uh, Dylan, why don't you tell us a little bit more about A Troll in Central Park? Oh, God. This movie is weird, man. <laughs> so, um, well, before we even get into like what the movie is, it's uh, starring... Tom uh, Jellowish! <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's oh me, gosh. God, dude, yeah. I always feel what like Peter, Peter Griffin is like a Dom Deluise. Yeah, you got to, you know. He's like a Dom Deluise impression. 
Peter Griffin. Yeah. <laughs> just like a walking one. Hey, it's Jay. I'm Tom Talloway. Right, I'm so a troll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Central Park, everybody. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Magic Garden. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I saw I saw Dom Deloise and I couldn't help myself. <laughs> All right, so uh, after being banished from his grim kingdom, Stanley... I've been banished! <laughs> played by Dom DeLuise, <laughs> um, an, um an amiable troll with a magic talent for growing greenery. <laughs> he's, so he's, he's got a, a green thumb. He's, he's a little, amicable. Oh he's an God, amicable dude. troll. I oh like that, God. that description. Um <laughs> And he ends up in Central Park, uh, struggling to adapt to his unfamiliar surroundings. Stan Lee is befriended by young Gus, who is played by Philip Glasser, and his little sister, Rosie, uh, who is Tawny Glover. Uh, Soon, however, the evil troll queen, uh, Norga, that's a weird name, (laughs) uh, who is played by uh, Cloris Leachman, uh, sets out, yeah, no, not bad, Uh, sets out to make Stan Lee's life miserable, endangering both him and the children. Awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty, uh, apparently it's a classical one, to be honest. I never saw this. Uh, It also stars Charles Nelson Reilly, who is a great comedic actor, and uh, another person we've talked about on the show before in our way back in episode three when we talked about one of my favorite movies, Brazil. Uh, It stars Jonathan Price as well. No, no kidding. Yeah. It's a box office complete fucking disaster. It was a a big disaster. The budget, $23.5 million, and it grossed (laughs) $71,368. It made 70 grand. Oh, my God. That's absolutely insane. Oh, poor Dom DeLuise. Wow. (laughs) I have no words for that. How do you even, like, what do you do after the box office numbers come in if you worked on that team and you backed that film and you just see that and you're like, (laughs) oh, God. This is a bad joke, but (laughs) you know Dom DeLuise snorted more cocaine than that. I don't know if he did cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guys, I'm back. He definitely, like, I feel like right now you could just make the obvious joke of Dom DeLuise ate that much, but that would be unfair to poor Dom. Rest in peace, Dom. He's one of my favorite, he is one of my favorite actors. Uh, I gotta give a shout out to him from, uh, what was that? In in American Tale, he's the big cat, the ginger cat, and he has, like, the worst fucking song in the movie, but I love it because it's such a terrible song. Oh, yes. Dom DeLuise. It doesn't seem like anything really good came out around the same time. No, but we're gonna either. we're gonna get back to that in a sec because this movie came out around the same time as uh, Chung King Express, so we'll be hitting that back up in our second film. Oh, but yeah, uh, true. I forgot. yeah, we're gonna take a quick break here, and then uh, we're going to jump right into Robert Altman's The Player. When it isn't really us, let's you and me be who we are. We're a duo, a duo, a pair of lonely ones who were meant to be a two. Oh, a two. Quiet on the set. Quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Joel Levison's office? No, I'm sorry, he's not in yet. May I take a message? Yes, Mr. Levy, I'll take a call. You never say that. He's either in conference, in a meeting, he's always in. Griffin, hi. 
Griffin, hi. A a Adam Simon. I, I know we're not supposed to meet till next week, but a lot of heat coming down on this one. Who are meeting next well, week. yeah, I just wanted to plant the seed in your head just now, just so that, you know, we could. So I'm booked up. I okay, can't well, hear just a picture right this. Now. Picture this. Okay, it's a planet in the far, far future. It's a planet with two suns. Who plays the sun? No, no, no. Suns. Large solar discs. Listen, you got to run this idea by Bonnie Sherman. Pictures they make these days are all MTV. Cut, 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 cut. The opening shot of uh, Wells' Touch of Evil was six and a half minutes long. Six and a half minutes long? Oh, three or four, anyway. Hi, Buck. How are you? Good. How you doing? Good. What do you got for me? Okay. Here it is. The Graduate, Part Two. Oh, good. Cool. Now listen. The three principals are still with us: uh, Dustin Hoffman, Anne Bancroft, Catherine Ross. Mm -hmm. Twenty-five years later, and so are the characters: Ben, Elaine, and Mrs. Robinson. Ben and Elaine are married. Still, they live in a big old spooky house up in Northern California somewhere. And Mrs. Robinson lives with them. Her aging mother has had a Dolly, 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 I like Goldie, I like Goldie, Goldie. Okay. Great. Goldie we have a relationship and, and that would Goldie be great, goes Goldie, goes to Africa. Africa. Goldie, Goldie goes to Africa, Goldie goes to Africa, she becomes worshipped, she, she, well she's failed by this tribe, small, yes. of small people, but then she has she's to failed by this tribe and they worship her, but so, then, and oh I see, it's kind of like a gods must be crazy except the coke bottles now a television actress, yeah it's exactly right, it's out of Africa meets pretty woman, well, pictures they make these days are all MTV. Cut, cut, cut. The opening shot of Touch of Evil was six and a half minutes long. Three or four, anyway. He set up the whole picture with that one tracking shot. My father was a key grip on that shoot. Not really. That's just a line from the player. Ha! A 1992 gotcha. Robert Altman film that. My God, if you love cinema, just go see this damn movie. It's a fucking love letter to Hollywood wrapped in a brick and thrown through Hollywood's window. Um, that's a ham-fisted metaphor, but I stand by it. It's called a... Yeah, it's called a satire, uh, but it's almost so much more than that. So this movie is 1992 film, as I said, directed by Robert Altman and written by Michael Tolkien, uh, no relation, based on his own 1988 novel of the same name. And it stars a lot of fucking actors. So uh, here's the short list for you. Tim Robbins as Griffin Mill, uh, Greta Sachi, Fred Ward, Whoopi Goldberg, Peter Gallagher, Bi Brian James, Cynthia Stevenson, Vincent D'Ofrino, Dean Stockwell, and Richard E. Grant. It also stars Lyle Lovett, Gina Gershon, and then just a list. I'm just 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 read these, Dylan. There's just a, a couple whole of bunch of names. Uh, Julia Roberts, Jeff Goldblum, Stephen Allen, Harry and Cher Belfonte, uh, Gary Busey, uh, Cher, <laughs> uh, James Coburn, uh, John Cusack, Peter Falk, uh, Andy Mc the. Do I need to keep going? There's you so could. many of Malcolm them. Malcolm McDowell, Elliot, Zach Lemon, Kathy Gould. Ireland, David Allen Greer, <laughs> Angelica shit. Houston. That's just a few. Jesus Christ. Um, in fact, in all that, I didn't even mention Bruce Willis. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so many, so many people. The music was done by Thomas Newman, and it's fantastic. It's actually one of my favorite soundtracks right off the bat. It's just as, like, it. it's so Hollywood, but also so the noir type of mystery film that they kind of make it or the murder type film that they make it yeah. um I, I just love it it feels like it feels like a weird take on big cinema music and basically yeah and it's like you said how it has that noir feeling where certain yep. tragedy like tragic things will happen and the camera will pan and then 
the band music will exactly swing right exactly in and you're like oh shit something's yep. going down it's, yeah, so it's it's very uh it's really predictable but if like you said if you love films it's just everything about it is so right. enticing well, it really is sort of a, like a it did for uh you know it does for cinema what showgirls does for stripping or right it's it's a satire on the filmmaking process and a lot of it as we'll talk a little bit more about later came from altman's own frustration with the hollywood system right so let's go ahead move on to these uh taglines oh yeah we got a couple cool ones here uh so again this movie is called the player now more than ever <laughs> one of them i don't count really now more than one. ever I, yeah. <laughs> yeah i guess i don't understand that one uh everything you've heard is true that's uh, okay Okay. I, I guess that makes sense because they're talking about like being in Hollywood, so the things right. we hear about Hollywood are actual facts. Right. Uh, and then the other one we got here is actually no, we got a few more. Uh, this one is in Hollywood. It's not who you know; it's who you kill. Mm. I like that one. Yeah. That one's a bit more. Yeah. See, three of these. The next one and those first two are like way too insider like i feel like you have to see the movie to get kind of the gist of that yeah that one and the last one are better way better i think yep i totally understand uh the next one is the best movie ever made quote from griffin mill yeah i do like that one <laughs> that but it cool. is again like you're, it makes more sense when you've seen the movie yep and then the last one we got here is Making movies can be murder. That's the best one. Yeah, that's a great that, one. That was the like Friday afternoon epiphany when everybody wanted to eat pizza or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, you know. right when they're about to split. Yeah. They're like, wait like, a minute. Movies can be, it's so simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, it had an $8 million budget, and it did pretty well in the box office. Mm -hmm. It made about $20.9 so it's $28.9 million yeah, in the box office. Yeah, pretty damn good. Yeah, not bad. And the critics liked it as well. Uh, the critics say on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 98% based on 61 reviews with an average rating of blah, 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 blah. Um, it's one of the highest rated films we've ever covered, actually. Uh, I don't think any film other than maybe Aguirre had that high of a rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. I believe Aguirre might have had 98 as well. Uh and uh, well, actually, in technically, Pink Christmas at a hundred percent. Yeah, it did <laughs> for bro. like six reviewers. <laughs> hey, stats so, are stats. Hey, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly, man. If you hit six lie. home runs in your career, but you only have six at bats, yeah, you're you're the king. You're yeah, the salt exactly. in the swing, right? You're, you're more home runs per <laughs> at bat than anybody else. Uh, big old Roger Ebert, he gave it a full four, so his highest rating. He called it a smart movie and a funny one, and absolutely. Uh, also absolutely of its time. After the savings and loan scandals, after Michael Milken, you can look that up if you don't know what that's all about, after junk bonds and stolen pension funds, here is a movie that uses Hollywood as a metaphor for the avarice of the 1980s. Siskel, who was still alive at the time, also gave it the perfect rating, and he said, if you knew nothing and cared nothing about the movie business, you can still appreciate the player as a ripping good thriller. And uh, yeah, I agree pretty much with that i didn't actually find uh, almost any negative criticism on this film because i think uh you know the normal film doughboys who like hate on films they didn't never never watch this one right, never got around to it, it. Yeah. yeah it's a nice little yeah. well-kept secret i also think altman is just one of those types of directors who 
it feels like his films lack pretentiousness, sort of like the Coens, and there's a couple other directors who get that. Like I know, you know, Kubrick and and uh, and David Lynch and huge names like that who are really really specific. There's lots of people who hate their style as much as there are people who love them. And I think a lot of it has to do with pretentiousness or people thinking things are pretentious. There's yeah. something about Altman that his films are just really like hard to to feel that way about yeah you know? i feel both that way about the film content itself and the fan base behind those people that you just mentioned before right i feel like there's a lot of pretension in the movie watcher as as much as there is in the stylistic right. likings of those people oh yeah they you don't get that feeling out of altman's movies they project it onto the film yeah, yeah. exactly so this film came out April tenth, nineteen ninety two. Day uh, before my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> this week we're going to talk a lot about animated films because there's a bunch of them that came out. Uh, we already mentioned obviously Troll in Central Park, but in nineteen ninety two we had Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, which fucking scared me when I was a little kid. That movie like freaked me out when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it like made me an environmentalist. I would say, but like <laughs> it definitely. I was like, what are they doing to the rainforest down yeah. there? When I was Whoa. like, when I was like six you know yeah um like straight up this isn't cool right this is not okay guys um also sleepwalkers uh came out of this time it's a film i've heard about but i've never actually seen but i've heard it's uh, i know people like it yeah i don't know around this time also came out rockadoodle which is about elvis as a cock i mean a rooster <laughs> um you were, you, know, right, you were right the yeah. first time. Uh, Beethoven, the, the first That's in the series about the dog. Yeah. Hell yeah. I liked how they had like Beethoven's fifth. Like those yeah. were some really clever titles Hell in there. Yeah. You know, you know that there was like a title guy who titled all those like in advance. And he was like, don't worry, guys. I got the so Beethoven series yeah. planned. I got like 20 like, films. Gonna, <laughs> yeah. He's like, are you going to make like a fucking 30? Yeah, please make 30 because I've written like 30 <laughs> titles. Beethoven's 30th. <laughs> uh, Delicatessen, which is one of my favorite movies, also came out around this time. And, uh, oh, I, w- I did pick another movie for the weird, weird movie of the uh, week when I was it. looking through. I didn't see it. It, uh, it was called Folks, but we'll just skip it. We'll talk about Folks some other time. Yeah. You can check it out on your own if you want. Yeah, watch it yourself. Uh, it, it is a movie that ends in an exclamation point. Folks! Oh, that's know? actually what it yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> folks, you know? Jeez, hey, guys, you want to go see, You want to go see folks like mother, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Dylan, why don't you give us our uh, tunes for the week? All right. So, this one was really weird. Um, yeah. So, in the United States... Everybody uh, was feeling sensual. Dude, this song fucking sucks, man. Um, <laughs> Save the Best for Last by Vanessa Williams. Yeah. I listened to it on my way here, and I got a minute into it. And I had to turn you it just off. like it jam was so over fucking bad. Oh, and like it's not Vanessa. like a couple of the other songs from the next couple of movies are slow and sensual, sort of like R and B songs, which are I don't have a problem with mm-hmm. those. I have a problem with this one because this song yeah. blows. We should have took notes from the UK who was listening to Deeply Dippy by Right Said Fred. Yes. At the time. That song kicks ass. It's it's complicated. It took me about a minute and a half to realize that it kicked ass because like a minute and a half 
the first minute and a half is not I was good. like this is like an acapella yeah. song by Right Said Fred like yeah. what's happening and then all of a sudden these horns and all the instruments come in and it makes sense but it's still all over the fucking place and I didn't expect that out of Right Said fucking Fred I didn't expect that Right Said Fred had a second hit neither did I yeah right yeah, I, you know um, and I was like oh yeah when I heard it though I was like oh god this is like I was like this is I just though because yeah, well I thought I knew <laughs> what I was getting into with, uh, with, the, uh, with two seconds uh, yeah, yeah. Nothing like that song. It's, no, except for nothing the except like for that, that vague the vague acapella stuff that's in I'm too sexy. Yeah, like, it, oh, honestly, this one, this one sounds more like like a Devo song or something. Though. Yeah, I don't think it really sounds. It's like, a like right said Fred yeah, this song. was like them trying to break down the right said <laughs> Fred genre that they had created. You know, it's really like get the what their message. Was yeah, <laughs> which apparently they didn't have because I don't like, think I got a message. They're out like of these the guys. Fuckers. They wore like the, you know like they wore the shirts that were like the things that Jeff Hardy has on his arms. They wore the net shirts, you yeah. know. Man, like unironically, were they gay then? Because that was like a gay thing I thought in the nineties. Because there was no okay. Problem. Have you ever heard I of the g- the gay Ken doll? No. Okay, this is a great story. <laughs> I gotta take fuck. it a quick aside here. So there's this Ken doll they put out, and it was super gay. Um, and gay men in the early '90s loved it. They were like, "Awesome, this is great." Um, not only did he have a pink net shirt, and uh, he had like a necklace around his neck that had like a big gold ring. <laughs> and they're like, "It's a cock ring. <laughs> like it's obviously a cock ring." Oh. So like, gay men bought it like crazy, and it became the number one selling Barbie doll of all time to this day. What? Yeah. Check it out. Did they, Just look up like, Gay did Ken they doll. Market, did they market it as Gay Ken? No. No. Dude, what the fuck? It was just supposed to be cool Ken. But, like, th- I think th- there's more to the story. It was, like, they, w- the guy who was designing it went to, like, a gay bar by accident and or something. And so he was, like, supposed to go get, like, cool hip fashions for Ken. And he went and, do like, or, like, during Pride or something. So his the fashions that he got were all... We're all like gay, gay men's fashions of the time, so he designed it on that, and then. But I just love that like turnaround where then gay men bought the doll like crazy, so it became like the number one. It's the best store. It's like the the go gay Ken doll go. What in the world right? was happening? Then? It's crazy. The nineties, man. Oh, the nineties were a wild time. I mean, like, April 1st, right around this time, Billy Idol was on trial for punching a woman in the face. Uh, He pleaded no contest. He was fined in order to make public service announcements against alcohol and drug abuse because he was drunk when he did it. Wow, what a fucking shocker. I can't get drunk today. And on April 20th, we had the Freddie Mercury tribute concert at Wembley. smoking weed there, bro. (laughs) Yeah. 420. 420, man. All proceeds went to AIDS research. It's a pretty big show that kind of got it kind of gets forgotten by today's uh audiences i it never it doesn't i mean obviously freddie was uh i think he may have i don't remember if he was actually dead at the time i think he must have been if it was a tribute concert um, that would be brutal if he wasn't dead. <laughs> like, hey, you're still alive, like, but you're gonna die pretty soon, you, bud. Yeah, like we're gonna throw be you a tribute awful. concert now um, holy fuck yeah i didn't research it so in video games 
Uh, so we had some great releases. We had Ultima 7, the Black Gate for the PC, which is a game that I played a whole bunch of, um, which also I'm sad that Ultima games, they kind of just died out. They didn't follow Elder Scrolls and other RPGs from the time from America to the promised land. There's six of them before that game yeah, at that they're point all, in time. They're, they're all pretty great. Ultima was a great series. Uh, and uh, also, Nintendo released Kirby's Dreamland for the Game Boy. Goddamn right, they did. Then first game in the Kirby series. Hell yeah! Um, is that what introduced? Is that where Kirby was introduced? He was. Do you know that Cur- Kirby was actually just a placeholder originally? The uh, Kirby sprite was just supposed to be a placeholder until they found a better sprite for the main character. And then after designing so much of the game with this placeholder guy. The game designer was like, I kind of like this guy. I like this little I'm keep orb. He's, he's Kirby, yeah. Hell yeah. So that's how we got one of the most beloved and hated, if you play Super Smash Brothers, yeah. uh, game characters of all time. People can fuck off. Yeah. Kirby's dope. Video games were strong in the 90s. This Hell was yeah. also, uh, 92 was when Philips released the CDI Multimedia Home Console, which was a horrible console. I was going to say, it must have been a smashing yes. success. It has some of the worst games ever made, really? and it's probably most famous for the terrible Legend of Zelda full motion video like cartoon games they made. I'll show you later. Um, okay. They're horrible. They're hor- You've probably Honestly, I bet you've seen it, someone post a GIF on it at some time because they're kind of famous as a meme now. Okay. Super NES released in Europe and Australia. Sega released the Mega CD as Sega CD in North America almost a year after the equivalent Japanese launch. And it was one of the things that would eventually kill Sega as a console maker. Anyway, we've taken a long aside here, so let's circle back around to the player. Um, The player. So in the 1970s, Altman had a big pro- a lot of problems with studio films uh, and st- with studios as he made a couple of studio films, including uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and The Long Goodbye. He had lost money or he had trouble finding audiences despite critical praise and cult adulation. Uh, he continued to work outside of the studios in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. Uh, and often he was doing small budget projects or filming plays. Right. So this is one of my favorite things about this, too. Yeah. That opening shot. Oh, my God. Seven minutes, dude. dude. Yeah. First opening shot in the movie is just like, um, it's borderline eight minutes. Seven minutes, 47 seconds. Yep. No edits. Uh, They took apparently 15 different tries at shooting the scene. 15 takes. uh, Used the 10th one for it. One of my favorite parts of that scene, though, is that it realizes itself as a long, uncut scene. That quote that you said earlier where he's talking about, yep. he's like, oh, you make so, this evil. movie, it's yeah. like, cut, cut, cut. There's so many cuts. He's like saying that during this really long, uncut yep. scene. Yep, it's amazing. Super yep. like, self-realizing. And it is very similar to, it is, it's not just a call out to the movie, it's also very similar to Touch of Evil's open um, in the way that he's using that to build, to do, I guess, build the world of the player for right. you and of the studio. Um yeah, and it does that cool, like, uh, changing perspective as the camera's panning thing. And I, I really enjoy yeah, that part yeah. of it, where someone will walk by, and then the camera will just follow them. And now they're mm-hmm. your focal point. Then they walk into a building, and then they're talking to someone at the desk, and that person walks away. And now the person at yep, the desk is yep. your focal point. Exactly. I think that's oh, yeah. Really cool. The, the sh- yes, the shifting focus in that scene is great. I also love um, the, the juxtaposition of 
repetitious themes. Um, this movie, excuse me, this movie has a lot of that in general, or at least like callbacks circling around, which we'll get to in a, in a little bit here. Um, but right at the beginning, it already, sh it sets you up with that. Like, so, it, you know, the camera comes around, you have the guy like, the graduate too. So, you know, we have the principal, you know, he's explaining. And then the camera goes back and it meanders off to follow some more people and go around and some more shit happens. You see Jeremy Piven and, and then it comes back to Griffin. And now you have two different women in the office and they're talking about, uh, and I love the way he puts it. So he's like, so it's the gods are crazy, but it's, it's a woman instead of a Coke can, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, so you're seeing like, you know, not just how, what he goes through, but how like fast Hollywood like how is. rapid fire. Right. Like, it's how like many pitches he's what actually yeah. seen. What happened to the graduate too? He said, oh, yeah, I'll talk to you later. You know, it's the yeah. same thing that is eventually going to happen to Vincent D'Ofrano. And uh, his character is the same thing that is happening to all these writers. Right. Because, you know, as the, and, and, okay, I, one of the things I really love about this film, and it, uh, if you listen to our, my last little short episode I did on, um, Beyond the Black Rainbow, which I almost called Over the Black Rainbow because I always do that now. Uh, that movie was an example of this uh, same idea where the main character in the film is a protagonist, but they are also the bad guy. And it's not that they're the villain. There is a villain, but the villain is what would traditionally be the hero, and the hero is who would traditionally be the villain. Um, and I think this film does it perfectly because my biggest problem with Beyond the Black Rainbow is that the the thing that that should do, I think, is make you root for them even though you know you shouldn't. That's what the player does. You are connected so much to Tim Robbins' performance and to his character that when shit happens, you forgive him. Right. You're like, but it did, but you know, like they, even though he's going yeah, back to back with yeah. doing villainous things, you're still exactly. Sort of like, but you're like, well, it's not his fault. That's just how Hollywood is, and all this shit. And it, it, Altman got you. That's what he wanted you to think, which is the wrong thing to think. You know, he essentially made a propaganda movie for people he doesn't like, which yeah. I think is so <laughs> weirdly interesting. You know, um, and it's it's editing is something I really also want to point out um he does he's a whiz when it comes to directing but his editing the editing that was done the people he has working on the editing in in this film are really really good um and uh i forget i don't have his first name but the guy's name is peroni and he would there's this like the mat he matched the tone really perfectly with certain cuts and there's one in particular there's this zoom in that go when he gets that postcard of Humphrey Bogart holding the gun it's like a zoom in on the the uh, on Bogart's hand and it's per it's then successfully matched with what appears to be a black frame and then it pulls back and it reveals that it's an open drawer and the postcard is in the drawer it's like oh my god it's such a great cut I was like wow I literally like stopped the movie. I was like, "What the fuck was that? That was so good!" Right, like, right, right. It may, it literally feels like it's all one shot. Like the camera stayed with that postcard, and then it dropped into the desk, even though it's a succession of cuts. Like I so think good. They did that so many different times in different mm -hmm. ways with that too, where he would do like Tim Robbins' character would. Uh, they're talking about uh, spoiler alert, uh, him killing that guy, mm -hmm. and, <laughs> um, and they're like. They're talking about hiding hiding it from the police and this right. and that, and then the scene would end and it would open up on a movie poster that said like "dangerous man" or yes. something. They kept like yep. cutting to these little 
M call was one response. of yeah. like, uh, one one big one was Fritz Lang's M. Um, right. Like, and uh, there's oh, there's another one they use a lot. Uh, I'm not going to remember it, but th- there's another. There's a couple of, and they're all real movies as well. Yeah, which <laughs> is awesome. they're all real classic Hollywood movies. So yeah, and they keep cutting to those better. and using the titles of those movies very situationally mm-hmm. to what's happening in the yeah, plot. Yeah, I, I almost really cool. and I almost take them as like uh, they're almost uh, like caption esque, like like um so, like uh, subtitles. Yeah, you know, right, like right. Act, this is the next act. You know what right, I mean? The right, way right, that right, they right. are situated in the movie, like it feels chaptered. like a, yeah, they feel like chapter titles or something. Yeah. Exactly. Um, there's another great one where, uh, in the Pasadena police station scene where he gets brought in and then they're all like laughing at him and uh, and he's he's freaking out. This, this film also has one of my favorite things in movies, a, uh, really great performance from someone who's not an actor. And that is 90s smash sensation on the airwaves. Lyle Lovett, who my mom, Maureen Harden, love you, mom. She uh, loved Lyle Lovett when I was a kid. And she may deny it now, but I remember that she thought Lyle Lovett was the bomb. So I listened to a lot of his music. And, uh, you know, well, she listened to a lot of his music and I was there. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I was Um, just hanging out, listening to Lyle Lovett. He's so good in this movie because he's cast correctly. Altman cast him, and basically, I feel like he just told him to be like bad, not bad, but like do do your thing. And he wanted a character who was sort of like normal and weird, and and like you felt like he was sort of like out of the movie. He wasn't yeah, an actor, God, you, you know. Could, that was exactly what you got out of him too. Yeah, the it's first so good. like thirty minutes he's in the movie, you cannot read him at. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. once they get to that scene you're talking about, yep. you're like, oh. So good. I love how he's introduced to as a cop when he finally, when he's, Griffin's like driving out and he oh, steps and out and then yeah. the, the camera goes, great tracking shots, man. Uh, Altman is always really good with like quick, you know, like close tracking shots like that, that, right. that make you be like, how do the, f- whoa, like it makes it feel like your, your eye like f- just shot out of the front of the car somehow. It's, right. it's cool. It's a really great technique. Um, and, and again, like, uh, we always, I mean, people always say like Altman or, or, you know, Tarantino did this, like, I know the director is the director, but you know, really the cinematographer also did a great job in getting what the director wanted as I guess what you're saying when you say Altman did this Well, his cinematographer was great and he asked for this and that's what he got. So, right, right, right. um, I really, really enjoyed this movie, uh, short synopsis for you. This is a movie about a producer who murders a writer and gets away with it and then is contacted by... An, well, actually, I guess I should say, this is about a producer who's being harassed by a writer, kills the the writer who he thinks is the one harassing him, uh, gets away with it, finds out that the writer who is harassing him is still alive and actually has written a script that is this script and that's how the movie ends. You will have the happy ending. End of movie. It's fucking brilliant. I've honestly, Perfect. I was blown away, man. I was blown away, and I love Altman. I love Nashville. Uh, I like a lot of his films. I don't know how I never saw this again. To mention my mother, my mother loved this film, and she told me when I was younger to watch it, and I never did. I thought the can- I, I've always been weird about Tim Robbins, and then I see a movie, and I'm like, he's fantastic. What is my deal with Tim Robbins? I'm always like, Ants, eh, Tim Robbins, like, yeah, and then he's fantastic. So I don't know what the deal was it. Um, if if someone had explained to me that this movie was, if they had just been like, it it's 
not a normal film or it's a film within a film ty- style like you know type of thing i would have been way way more interested and would have watched it a long time ago right. but it is fantastic. Yeah, I think it's super enticing from start to finish. I think I love how it's self-realizing. It's it's not taking itself too seriously, but then it does take itself very yep. seriously. Um, if you like movies, it's intriguing from being a movie about movies being made. So I think it's always fun to see that perspective right, right. of it, like we were talking about before, listening to them pitch things, listening to them talk about pitches when the writers aren't there. Mm-hmm. I think all that is really, really cool. Yep. Um, the movies within the movie, bigger than the the uh, the writer writing the script about the murder, right. when they're actually working on movies in the movie. It's so cool to see. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a perfect movie. I don't think it leaves you unsatisfied in any way. I think I think well there are things about it that could be I mean it there are it's a very interesting approach to to dialogue and to scene transitions in it um like the way that conversations between two sets of characters fade in and out of each other one great example is when uh you have like Burt Reynolds having the conversation with the guy and another director like they're talking at a table and then uh, Brian James is sitting behind them and like Griffin comes in and he like the you you're getting Burt Reynolds's conversation as the camera fades in and then all of a sudden they're and now you're in Tim Robbins conversation yeah, and now Burt Reynolds is gone. it's yeah, yeah. such interesting like transitions that aren't normal and again like I'm going to talk a lot about this this episode and um I don't know if Altman had any I know he didn't have any connection to this really but I'm sure he knew these guys being of a uh, famous director he probably knew he definitely knew of Jean-Luc Godard and other French directors but there's a lot of like French new wave style breaking the rules in this film yeah a lot of it doesn't feel very western no exactly exactly and approach from start to right and I specifically bring that up because uh 100% King Express is French New Wave inspired. Right. And I personally think uh so is The Fifth Element. So it's interesting to me that like all three of these films were very much inspired by film at least I think the idea of breaking the rules of traditional film and about how you could make something so great by it with one hand observing old Hollywood and what's important and great about it and also being doing new things and breaking through and doing different stuff i don't really think i've ever seen a film that like and i kind of called the conceit pretty early it was around the the scene where he kills the writer i was like oh this is this is a a movie where or a script where at the end you realize you've been watching the script you know what i mean so to speak um, you've been watching the movie itself is is it's writing itself in right front of you. right yeah. it's a, yeah I mean I'd essentially consider it a fourth wall break when when that happens at the end in the sense where it's like you're being told it's a movie he's telling you he literally recites everything that happened right. in the last right. like exactly hour and a half. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> on a quick phone call yep. and I love I love that scene I also love uh, how it's very interesting that that particular conversation is very similar to the conversation he has in his office with Fred Ward earlier on in the film. Yep. That's my final question about this film. Who do you think, or does it matter, who the writer really oh, was? who the one that, yeah. Yeah, oh, like okay. who, 
who really was the bad guy, you know what I mean? And I think what's so interesting about that, before I, I want to just say about it, I don't think it's it's actually something that can be answered or is intentionally important, like because they're essentially striking a deal at the end. And so the writer is as evil or whatever, as as villainous as Griffin is. Yeah. He's like, hey, I know you did this shit, but I want to fucking get paid. I want in on it. Let's make a movie. Right. You know, I could tell. Yeah, I could tell in you, but I'm not going to get paid if I do that. How about we turn this into a movie and and this time you'll win. And I think I think it. To answer your like sort of question that you just had right there, mm. where d- is it him or is it just one of the random other? I would like to lean towards it just being some random person that you never saw in the movie right. because they put emphasis on how many pitches they hear all the time. He has that when he before he kills them in the bar, he's telling them how he he hears so many pitches, like hundreds of pitches yep. a day, and some of them just get lost in the mix. And then they're saying that when they're talking amongst the producers that he's like, I've heard like five thousand pitches yeah. this year, this yep. and that. So it kind of makes you think, like, some of those people got to be pissed, you know? Exactly, exactly. And it just kind of brings, like, an animated right. to it. And, and I, also, I also like to think that um, it's, it's kind of like what I said, where Altman is kind of stringing you along. Because um, I feel like it's a combination of a couple different, like, you know, plot tropes that you see. You know, you have the, uh, the, person, the successful person being blackmailed or something like that, you know, with the, the postcards he's getting. You have uh, the obvious, you know, murder. Murder as main character story. Um, and then you have the... Uh, I, I. It's close to film within a film. I mean, it's not really because it's not like... It's not like, say, Hail Caesar or... Uh, you know, you know, uh, contempt again, where where it's like there's an actual film being made that has a title that isn't a real film in it. That's the central part of it. Like I feel like the the films that are mentioned that are fake films within it are more satirical. They're for satirical purposes, like to mock modern Hollywood at the time, rather than to become like the central focus of it is there's this fake film that we're we're making a film about, you right, know. Right. But it still feels like the film of the film thing because of how much fourth wall or at least fourth wall like line stepping they do, you yeah. know. I, I feel like habitual about, line steppers. Something about a movie about movies, I feel like will always sort of yeah. feel like a fourth wall break. Yeah. Because it's like I don't know, it's like I don't know. Movies talk about movies. You're exactly. sitting there, wa- you're exactly. in your room watching a movie while they're talking about making a movie mm-hmm. that you'll inevitably be sitting there watching. Right. They're talking about how people don't want ha- like people don't want sad endings. They want happy endings, and that's exactly. such a common thing that people genuinely say. Yep. So there are people that I can picture that were sitting there watching the player, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, I, I don't want that sad, depressing ending. I want a happy ending. Exactly. I want I want Bruce Willis to come and bust in yep. the fucking door and save yeah. the we save should, the day. I, yeah, we should mention that too. That's probably my favorite part of the movie is how you have the the original story being this tragic tale where the judge, you know, sends her by, you know, accidentally or whatever, sent, you know, without knowing, sentences her to death. And then he finds out it's her and he rushes there, but it's too late. And she's just, because I also feel like the way he explains it, it's like she's just alive enough that they see each other and then she dies. You know, it's like the pellets have been dropped. There's nothing they can do. 
And then to see the film later and you're waiting and you just know the whole time I was like, I know it's going to be the happy ending. This is so. And then, yeah, Bruce Willis busts in, he kicks over and he's fucking like, and they say a line that again, repetition in the film that is repeated at the very end of the film by Griffin and, and his new wife. Is uh, it's like the what took you so long? Traffic was a murder, you know. Tra- traffic was a bitch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Traffic yeah, yeah. was a bitch. So good. <laughs> and again, I love how like that's how the film ends. There's so many like successive callbacks to each other. Um, they it's just a really good film, man. Honestly, I give it five. I put it in the canon. Me too, baby. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> it's figured, a five. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it, yeah. If you like movies go watch this freaking movie it's yeah so it's, good. you don't even have to like a specific type of no. movies if you like movies watch it it's a fucking it's amazing amazing movie. especially if you've ever seen any of altman's films and you like them and for some reason you haven't watched this one you'll love this one i think this might be his best movie of the ones i've seen i mean again nashville is really fucking good but this movie is i don't know this movie was fantastic fuck yeah so, i'm glad you liked it yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, that is the playa, and now we're going to take a quick break and then move on to Chunking Express. Strange. Not much is happening in this movie, and I can't fully explain why I love it so much, but it has left the strongest impression in my mind of all cinema. That was a quote I found on the internet from a person named Karen Kaxi. I'm not sure if that's how it's pronounced, but it doesn't that's matter. Pretty much exactly. Karen Kaxi. 
pretty much exactly what you yeah. said to me too when you told me about this yep. movie. I couldn't tell you why I like it. I couldn't tell anyone why I like it. I'm gonna try, but <laughs> oh god, man, it is it left a mark on me uh, a long time ago when I first saw it. I'm talking about Chungking Express, a film that asks the bold question, if that kind of weird manic pixie dream curl waitress at the local sandwich bar you go to every night was breaking into your house to clean, redecorate, play with stuffed animals, dance around while listening to the Chinese version of the Cranberries' dreams, which she actually sung, the actress. Yes. And wash your clothes and dishes, would you even notice? The answer is yes, when she floods your house. Yes, now we have the answers to the age-old questions. How many cans of pineapple is too much? Why do women in suspicious blonde wigs wear sunglasses? And why do I really want a chef salad right now? 30 cans because they are lonely and because chef salads are fucking rad. This is a movie with two sets of stories about love and the listless existence of adulthood in two broken-hearted Chinese dudes, two manic pixie dream girls, two girls named Bay, and more than nine minutes of California dreaming by the mamas and the papas and a whole bunch of cigarettes. What a difference a day made. This movie really makes you want a cigarette. <sighs> yeah, it does. It's like watching like Mad Men. Yeah, it does. Where I'm like, oh, yeah. fuck, I really want to smoke exactly. a cigarette. I don't even smoke cigarettes. I know. <laughs> like, and I, I, really yeah. I know that I in, know. A, in a lot of Asian culture uh, or countries, rather, it, there's like smoking is way more normalized even today. But yes, there is a lot of yeah, smoking. Fuck. It makes me really want to chef's too. I know, and a lot of chef's <laughs> There's a lot of food in this movie, yeah. and, but we'll get to that. So, Chungking Express is a 1994 Hong Kong drama film at 102 minutes, and it was rated PG-13. It was written and directed by Wong Kar Wai, and it stars Brigitte Lin, Tony Leung, Fei Wong, Takeshi Kaneshiro, and Valerie Chow. And the music was done by Frankie Chan. It is my pick this week, and it is one of my favorite movies of all time. In fact, it is, I believe, on my official list that I made. It's like the number five, my number five or six movie. I'm of pretty all time. alarmed that you picked a Hong Kong film. Why? I'm totally fucking. <laughs> I you always me? pick fucking love, Hong Kong films. Yes, I love Hong oh Kong, China, spoiler alert, Korean cinema. I'm a big fan of Asian cinema. So, but I'm really happy you picked it because yeah. I feel like this movie falls in a weird blip of my life that is. Movies I wouldn't really ever, ever, ever find mm-hmm. unless someone told me to watch it. And yeah. I'm pretty pumped that it happened. Um, we got one tagline for it, and it's pretty fucking spot on. I think it's a great tagline. It is, if my memory of her has an expiration date, let it be 10,000 years. Yeah, it's a great one. That's a, a line from Cop 223, played by Takeshi Kaneshiro. Um and I think it really sums up this whole movie rather well. It's one of the better taglines I think we've ever had on this podcast. Uh, so right in line with the player, we had two good, descriptive, well, well-placed taglines. Yeah, they so. made sense. They fit the story. No bullshit. Yep, exactly. Right to the point. Exactly. Um, the box office, was, it was pretty cheap to make, I'd say. Or not pretty cheap. 
in the United States. Oh, I didn't find the budget. Yeah, I never oh. found the budget. Uh, right, well. it, but here's the thing. Let me. Okay, actually, I should jump in right here for the budget thing. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so this movie kind of has a weird little backstory to the why it was made. Um. So he had just made a film that was called, I believe, Ashes of Time, which was a huge Hong Kong movie. Uh, it stars everyone. Um, pretty much, it started. It's like a list. I, Literally was, every person yeah, ever. It's is like in this the movie. it's like a Hong Kong actor's dream minus like you know Jackie Chan and a few super mega stars. But for the most part, it's a, it was a bunch in, of people who had been in all these movies. Um, it was a sword and historical style, you know, swordsman style movie. Um, and uh, he was like super burnt out. Wong Kar Wai, I mean from making it and especially in the editing process of this gigantic epic epic movie he literally said something along the lines of like i like couldn't see anything anymore like i couldn't see anything but the <laughs> epicness and it was like too much so in order to like wind down before he finished editing that film uh he just like went out with a camera and some of the actors and they just shot this movie it was like he it was shot uh, it's cinema, um, not, oh my God, it was shot, uh, in order, like scene by scene. It's like he oh, really? wrote the script as they made it. Yeah. Wow. The movie was just like kind of done on the, on a whim. It was like, a you know, has shades of like a student film or something like that for that reason, because he was just kind of like, I'm just going to make a movie and whatever happens, happens. Right. So the budget might be like almost zip like close to like not much like they're right, all right, just right. kind of like fucking around and having fun That's i don't know crazy. who got pay- yeah i couldn't find like i'm sure there's information out there i didn't look super hard for it but i didn't see like anything when i looked for it so that's that big story. Yeah, we'll assume that it was made with zero dollars until yeah. until or it, otherwise. Yeah, it was made with the <laughs> partially with the budget from the other film, which was probably a huge budget since it was like in, you know a Cleopatra levels of epicness, I guess. Holy so. moly! <laughs> but it made, made lots okay. of money. Yeah, for that, <laughs> for that, not knowing what it was made for, it made a good amount of money. Um, Six hundred thousand, two hundred in the United States. And then what was that, Kevin? What's the other one we got here? It's uh, that's Hong Kong. So oh, it made yeah. seven million six hundred seventy-eight hundred thousand million billion thousand. It made about a million dollars uh, in Hong Kong. Oh, okay, so that's what I wasn't yeah, sure yeah. what your parenthetical was. Oh yeah, no, it made yeah. Sorry, it made uh, seven seven million in Hong Kong dollars, which is a. a a million like us yeah, yeah. yeah okay cool cool um and it it's more of a film that i think broke him not only to a greater audience worldwide but very specifically i think for him a greater audience in china which then pushed him worldwide further when he made further films including like uh, in the mood for love and stuff like that later on in his career uh, so this movie was kind of like a stepping stone. This is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies. If you had the old DVD or VHS of this, you got a before and after movie. Quentin Tarantino, like, hey, like at the beginning of the Studio Ghibli films where that guy from Pixar is like, I love Miyazaki. <laughs> you know, it was basically that. It was like, Qu- it's like Quentin- the biggest home. Yeah. It's like a really poorly edited Quentin Tarantino being like, um, you know, it's like the, um, um, 
in the thing we, like, he, he, he's like shitting his way through it it's like you know when you can't think of something on the podcast and you're like spinning your wheels that's like the whole thing it was like not edited at right, all right, right. it's great it's fantastic it's so 90s <laughs> and when it was made like when the film had just come out too so he's talking about like it like kind of in the the current like he had just made Pulp Fiction like a year before like he's in the current era Holy you know what shit. I mean yeah it's interesting you can yeah, it's on awesome. YouTube so look up Quentin Tarantino Chunking Express and you can find it on oh, YouTube hell yeah. yeah hello and welcome to Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express now Wong Kar Wai for my money is one of the most exciting filmmakers that has come out since I've personally been making films well there's a video of it hmm. yeah. Critics say it is 87% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Big Man Ebert gave it three out of four stars. He said, this is the kind of movie you'll relate to if you love film itself, rather than its surface aspects such as story and stars. It's not a movie for casual audiences. It may not reveal all the secrets its first time through. If you're attentive to style, if you think about what Wong is doing, Chunking Express works. If you're trying to follow the plot, you may feel frustrated. Yeah, I could. Yeah, yeah. I think that is. Pr- I mean, because all right. So I saw this movie for the first time when I was in sixth or seventh grade. Um, my mom, my parents had this film, and I, after stealing their copy of Pulp Fiction and watching that, this was one of the other films that I found my way to. I thought it was going to be like that. I was very surprised at what it was, but uh, immediately was drawn to it. Like I remember, I was like, I was like, felt like I didn't like it, but. I liked it. It was, I couldn't like put my finger on it. I was like, nothing happened in that movie. But I really, I'm in, I'm transfixed by it. Like, I want to know what the fuck happened. Like, I want to go back and try again and see if I find out what's going on. Right. And uh, so I think that's a really great way to put it. Um, I was more drawn by that. It sounds like Ebert was a little bit turned off, but he still gave it three out of four stars. So that's, you know, that's his normal, like, good rating. Yeah, and I kind of get where he's coming from, from the whole, uh, if you're just a casual, uh, you want a story with a... You're a casual. A, yeah, yeah, you're just a cash. Um, <laughs> if you, if, but it makes sense. Like, if you're just watching a movie and you just want, like, the introduction of a conflict, a, like, climax and a resolution, right? like, you're not necessarily going to get that watching Chunking Express. Yeah, no, not really. In fact, you're going to get one set of characters that you get zero resolution. Yeah, really. Exactly. I mean, and you, you basically get no of. uh you don't get introduced to conflict either. Right, right. They're like the first plot of characters you see, you're thrown into the conflict and then so you're basically like starting at the climax right, of right. what his relationship is like and then you don't get a resolution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, but there's or, more to it than that. Well, it's also kind of like the resolution, even of the the second or what some people consider like the main story with with Tony Chung and Fei Wong. Yep. As the resolution isn't a Hollywood like they got back together resolution, right, but it right, is right. it is super uplifting, a wicked uplifting because like they're both happy the way they are, and like I'm always left with the impression that like they're not lying. That's what's so important about it. That like I really believe that they're gonna they're gonna do what they say, and that like things are gonna work out, and eventually they're gonna be together. It's like weird. It's like I I believe it. I don't know why, but the right. film has made me believe in that, and uh, I don't need to see them like kiss. I don't need to see them be like, oh, well, now we're gonna get married. Like that doesn't. It, it, it's uplifting because they're so assured of who they are. You know? Yeah, I think a big supporting beam of that 
feeling throughout their whole chemistry is the first plot line. Mm. Is that there? You don't feel any sort of no. certainty about anything. So once or you get thrown or, into the normalcy of their dynamic, you're right. like, okay, this is like a safe pad for them. Right. And I also think you don't feel the same chemistry. I think what's so interesting in the juxtaposition is that like Cop Two Two Three and the Woman in the Blonde Wig storyline feels like forced or uh, victims of circumstance type yep. story. You know, like like. They don't want each other. She wants her boyfriend to not be a douchebaggy, drug-dealing guy who's fucking another woman. And he wants May to come back to him. Right. And they don't really want each other. They're just both there, you know? And But in the second story, you have two people who are in the same circumstances who actually fall in love with each other. And it doesn't work out the way you would think. But it works out in a way that is more important to the third group, I'm going to say, of characters. There's three groups of characters, I would say, in this film. Oh. And oh. what? No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you didn't know yeah. this was coming. Know. Yeah. So uh, you have, as I said, you have you know, Cop 223 and the woman in the blonde wig. You have Faye and Wong and, uh, and Tony Lung. And then you have Hong Kong itself as its own character. And uh, I think that, like I said in the open, this film is really about loneliness and the loneliness of, of very particularly city life and how living in a major city, especially a city like Hong Kong or New York or Los Angeles, can create these, this, this, uh, you know, these lonely people who are alone while they're surrounded by everything. And uh, you see a lot of this in the film, like uh, in the scenes where um, Bridget Lynn is looking for the, the guys who ran away with her drugs. She's in all these situations where she's standing as like an outsider, you know, in her wig and her sunglasses and her big Greta Garbo fucking jacket. And and like everybody else is like eating and laughing and talking and they're they are not lonely. They have found their place and I think what's so important about the ending of the movie and the thing that makes you uplifted is that whether or not you realize it or not, you you know that Faye and Tony Lung have found their place. Like, she's the flight attendant now. And as weird as that is that Tony Lung's uh, ex-girlfriend was also a flight attendant, she's she's found her place. She wasn't in the right place when she was blasting California Dreaming working in a fucking sandwich shop, you know? Right. Now right. she's found her place. She's confident. She's she's a different character, but she's the same person in that scene. It's amazing. And then the camera turns around and it's like Tony Lung's the same thing. He's not doing what he doesn't want to do anymore. Like the the guy he was was because of his ex. And now he's doing what he wants to do. He's got his he's bought the sandwich shop and he's confident and he's happy and he's he's willing to believe that she can do her thing and he can do his thing. Like they've become the people who aren't lonely. And I think the problem with the first two characters is that they will always be there as the lonely backdrop. You know, they can't break out of it. And I think really uh Sakeshi Kaneshiro's performance really hammers that home. He's such a lovesick little like baby boy that when 
it's hard to like that character. You're like, dude, just fucking get over it, man. You're eating fucking pineapple for a month for this girl who dumped right, you the right, day right. before your fucking birthday, man. Like, or the month. <laughs> I should say one month before your birthday. But still, like, fuck this chick. Like, move on with your life. And, and, and like, then same thing with Bridget Lynn. It's like, you're sad about this guy. You know, like, like it, it, it feels like they're going to always be spinning their wheels in loneliness. So then the film shows you two people going through the same circumstances and breaking free of it. So that's what I really like about it. Yeah, that's, I mean, I actually got a great point to make about this, but I want to dig into the time capsule stuff after. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. 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 So keep digging on through this thing. All right, cool, man. Um, yeah, so uh, just to wrap up the critics, because I totally went on a huge thing, the audience score is 94%. So the audience likes this uh, a lot more. And they had some good stuff to say about it, too. Yeah. I liked some of these. I saw that coming, too, when I watched this. Yeah. This is definitely a, a watcher's movie. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a film lover's movie, yeah. definitely. So we had a deleted user profile because <laughs> it was a deleted guy bitched out. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he got in trouble. He left so um, many bad reviews. But he said, he said this really great line. I like this. Chungking Express has a singular and elegant cinematic language. I like that. Yeah. You know? Sam J gave it three and a half stars and said, this film was solid. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Oh, my God. Um, and then he went I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. yeah. It's solid, yeah. Exactly. It is a solid <laughs> movie. And user Masod, Masod says, gorgeous. I spend my life looking for this film's vibe in the real world. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Kinda, it sounds like it's kind of stealing from your book. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So this film was released in Hong Kong on the 14th of July, 1994. Dylan, why don't you give me the movies that were released around then? Oh, just a little film. Uh, Stan Lee's Magic Garden. Uh, no, so it's uh, a troll. True <laughs> Believers. A troll I'm back. <laughs> I've returned to the show. Dylan has summoned me. The a bad Stan Lee impression. A troll yeah. in Kevin's weird yeah. impressions park. <laughs> a troll in Central Park. Um. <laughs> yes, a film that is somehow not about Donald Trump. Oh, God. You snuck that one in there yeah, on I me. I did. Uh, True Lies. Uh, Angels in the Outfield, which is a great movie. Forrest Gump. Um, Heisei Tanuki Gassen Panpoko. A.K.A. Palm Poco uh, by Sao Takahaka. We mentioned that a little bit in our Miyazaki episode. Oh, right, right, right. Yes. Well, I just, and I, the mask. Yes, I, the I mask as well. <laughs> the mask. Um, music. I love the mask. Mask is a fucking great movie. Yeah, it, is great. it is great. Um, music, a little bit better than the last time that we were on here. Um, I swear. By all the for moon one. in the stars. <laughs> That is a fucking jam. It is. I was so, I literally, I said to Olivia, I was like, dude, fucking, we got all for one. I swear this week. I've been killing to reference all for one at some point in a normal conversation. Did you listen to this next song? Yeah, I did. Good. Good. (laughs) What is it, it, Kev? All Around by Wet, Wet, Wet. (laughs) Oh, dude. Only, dude, uh, this is why I keep putting these in. England, man, England has got some of the greatest fucking number one hits. I think it's funny listening to the U.S. ones and the U.K. ones side by side. Side by side, exactly. Because, like, seeing what the people in the United States were into is so fucking different than what the U.K. was into. It's great. (laughs) 
I gotta start. You know what? I gotta start getting crazier with it. Like I should start looking up like Hong Kongs for like where the movie came out. Yeah, like, I right, add, like, right, right. Oh, Hong man. Kong and like maybe France or you know whatever. Dude, yeah, like, we could learn yeah. some sweet music. That exactly. Way. Um, so Aerosmith became the first major band to pre- premiere a new song on the internet. Over yeah, over ten thousand CompuServe subscribers downloaded the free track <laughs> Head First. Within its first eight days of availability. That's pretty funny to think that like ten thousand downloads in eight days. Is that what it was? Eight yeah, days was crazy. Was, back was then. insane. Yeah. Th- that was yep. a, a, like insane numbers to them. Yep. Like Kendrick Lamar releases an album and it gets like two hundred or twenty million streams in like a minute. Within like yeah. thirty minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like the duration of the album, like that much time after it's released, they're like, up oh, and it's at fifty million right. listens. It's like right. holy fuck. Everything's just expediated, you know. Yeah. Also, I gotta uh, ask you though first before you get to that last. <laughs> I thing just wanted here. to drop that. I know. Um, <laughs> have you ever heard the song "Head First by Aerosmith? No. 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 I have never even heard of it, dude. I don't I can't really. Imagine. I don't really dig Aerosmith. To be no, honest. I. I mean either. But I'm just like <laughs> I was like the field house in my high school when they were small. I don't give a oh fuck. My <laughs> God, I. They did do. Yeah, that. dude. Every, everyone who's from Beverly, who's like. 50, 60 nope. years old is like, I saw Aerosmith play in the field house when I was oh, in yeah. high school. Yeah. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, well, like, that's so whack. See, yeah, in my, I'd be pissed. In my town, it's Boston. Cause, uh, oh, hell yeah. Because yeah, Brad Delpool. I don't know if he... He, he from, went to Danvers High. Yeah, he yeah. went to Danvers High, yep. And um, he worked... Actually, honestly, it's right down the street from here. He worked at, a, at this uh, machine shop that everybody from Danvers... Fucking worked at it. Yeah, seems yeah, like. yeah. Um, Holy shit! And uh, so yeah, he's he was a, a native of this town, yeah. and so everybody around here fucking is like, I knew him, and you're like, yeah, sure you did. Yeah, dude, my friend, uh, my buddy Sean Kennedy grew up. Uh, yep. Currently, family lives in the house that Brad Delp like grew up in. There you go. Totally. See? Like, dude, told you, townie, bro. It's a Brad Delp <laughs> town around these pats. And then uh, the one I wanted to drop really yeah. bad. <laughs> I, I, now I feel bad saying it. No, after I'm like, do. I want to, I want to say this. this. I want to say it. Tell you hold people. me back. Hold me back. Uh, in April that year, Kurt Cobain killed himself. He did. Allegedly. Don't worry, we have another one coming in the next movie. He killed himself know. allegedly. I don't know if she you read ahead. Someone else died for the next movie, but we'll get to that. She did. Yeah. So I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know. I've. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Kurt. Kurt was a pretty. Uh, was a pretty depressed dude. Yeah, it he wasn't just, the most uh, stable person. But the there's world. that whole thing where they say he did too much heroin. In order, like he did too much hair. You, you couldn't have shot yourself if you're that fucking flaming. I was just like, you know, well, Who wait a said minute. That? Yeah. No, I didn't mean that. <laughs> no, I, I know, know. but I'm, I'm saying, like, like, what is that? That's what the, the, the doctor, like, the doctor who said that was like, yeah, 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 I mean, you do that much H, man, you're going to be fucking on the moon, buddy. <laughs> you're like, yeah, hey, doctor, what? how do you know that? Yeah, hey, yeah, I, I geez, don't. I just, uh, <laughs> I'm a doctor. <laughs> I don't, uh, you know, partake. Um, but yeah, no, I just heard that, like, he was like, the amount of heroin in his system was enough to cause multiple overdoses and he wouldn't have been able to operate a shotgun. So, but again, that's like that shit. They like, what yeah, a bloke. Somebody like says that and then it gets put into a fucking meme on the internet and yeah, you're like, of course. 
I don't know if it's true or not. So yeah. I think Kurt Cobain did commit suicide. I don't think Courtney Love. I Courtney like, Love was too high to fucking shoot him at the scene. Yeah, you seriously, know? Jesus. If anybody was too high, it was Courtney Love. Exactly. Jesus Christ. Or, I just like saying that yeah. now. It's I'm at the point where I'm so rooted in just saying that Courtney Love did it that I just exactly. feel like I have exactly. to say it. Yeah, I get it. It's that. like a knee-jerk reaction. Hey, you know what, though? Uh, big shout-out to Frances Bean. Hope she's doing okay. Hey, yeah. You know, she made it through all that, all hey, that yeah. shit. I can't imagine what it's like to be. Kurt Cobain's daughter. Yeah, Jesus Christ. So, in video games, uh, Nintendo <laughs> proclaims 1994 the year of the cartridge. And, oh my God, it kind of was. Dude, it definitely was. Yeah. In uh, June, they released Donkey Kong 94, as it's called, for the Game Boy, uh, which was remakes of the first four stages of the original Donkey Kong, my favorite game of all time, and uh, 96 puzzle-based levels. And uh, it's it's a little bit different from the original game as Mario can do lots of stuff, including backflip, handstand, and spin on wires. But it did receive critical acclaim, and it is a Game Boy classic. We also had LucasArts releasing TIE Fighter uh, for the PC. Which is awesome. Yep. And Nintendo releasing Mother 2 for the Super Famicom in August. You may know that game better in America as the classic game Earthbound. Um, and it's one of my favorite games, one of my favorite series. The Mother series is fantastic. Yeah, Earthbound is such a fucking yeah. good game. Honestly, I, I feel like that's someone you could do a whole podcast on that game and just like play through it and talk about each set because it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's so a bit good. ahead of its time. Oh, way, way, way ahead of its time. Um, so, Chunking Express, the, uh, one, some interesting stuff I found about this. So, the Chunking in the title, uh, refers to the Chunking Mansions in Sim Sha Sui, where Wong grew up in the 1960s, and Express refers to the food stand Midnight Express, located in Lan Kwai Fong, uh, an area in central Hong Kong. So, like I said earlier, this film was kind of just like... As he said, actually, while I had nothing to do, I decided to make Chunking Express following my instincts. And after the heavy stuff, uh, heavily emphasized in Ashes of Time, I wanted to make a very light contemporary movie, but where the characters had the same problems. So he originally envisioned the stories as similar, but with contrasting settings, uh, one in Hong Kong and one in Kowloon, but he's felt that the he felt that despite the difference, they were the same stories. So, like, I think that's a really interesting thing about it, that honestly, until I read that quote, it didn't even really dawn on me. The fact that, first of all, I don't know the difference really from looking between, you know, Kowloon Bay side and, and you know, the uh, Hong Kong Island side. Right. But just the whole fact that it daylight nighttime thing, that didn't even really dawn on me that, like, most of the Fei Wong, Tony Long segment is daytime, if not all of it, and almost all of, if not all of, the first segment is at night. These contrasts in the film that are just kind of, they're very subtle. You know, it's not like made a big deal of the fact that he's doing it, and it. I think it really emphasizes the real difference between the two stories um, in, a, in a way that is, again, subtle and interesting. Yeah. So. Um, I want to tie it back to what you were saying earlier about mm-hmm. um, Hong Kong being... Like the third the character, character yeah. of it. Um, I loved Moonlight. 
that movie Moonlight when it came out. It's very good. I this totally made me feel like Moonlight. Okay. At a ton of parts of it. Okay. Because like Hong Kong in Moonlight would be like Miami. And right. it sort of has that same similar feel to it where the city that it's taking place in is more than just a location. It's right, it's right. feeding on the characters and the world is kind of like evolving around them and people True. are becoming dependent on um, ideas of different cultures and stuff where Miami is like very dependent on a lot of like South American culture and right. where Hong Kong in the movie is really dependent on a lot of like Western and European culture right. where they're and listening, also, yeah. listening to these songs, watching these VHS mm-hmm. tapes all the and time. And also Indian. That's another thing I think is it's really missing in a lot of Chinese films is other other cultures in the area that are all over the place there. And so like there's a, a ton of Indian people in this film and Indian music. And uh, yeah, it feels like this weird blend because you also have like that the reggae styles and the American influenced and actual American music in uh, Fei Wong's version of uh, the Cranberries Dreams and in California Dreaming. So like, yeah, it's just like this boiling pot of like, and that's what Hong Kong is, right? So like, it feels like everything happening at once, you know? Right. And so when I had that thought about the connecting to Moonlight, I like looked it up. Because I was like, there's no way that I'm... Bit, he loves oh, Moonlight. But, but, yeah, they, dude, they, I love Moonlight. I had to look no, it No, no, but I'm just saying, oh, the director kid, of Moonlight loves yeah, this movie. Well, dude, yeah. yeah, this dude, apparently, this dude fucking loves Chunking yep, Express. Yep, totally. And I found this <laughs> awesome, fucking awesome quote, and it goes, uh, Chunking Express shows that the world is shrinking and that we as humans are becoming, if not already, more interconnected with cultures from around the globe. That is Chunking Express's great lesson. Yeah. That lesson is clear in Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. For many of us, Miami is not Hong Kong, but the people and experiences we meet in Moonlight are just as eye-opening as seeing people in Hong Kong. Jenkins beautifully portrays Chunking Express's thesis statement about the power and warmth of having and developing relationships, whether via a friendship, family, or romance. Wow, that's good. Dude, it's like, yeah. whoa! <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense, and honestly, it's something, until we started to talk about it, I didn't really think a lot about that aspect of it, um, that, you know, that's the, the part of it becoming more and more a part of human existence, and that to go back and look that, that in 94, Wong Kar Wai was already seeing this, you know what I mean? And yeah. That, like this is something that now is yeah it's very commonplace you it's know still to this day something that's very real yep yep and oh man I love I, I love that that's a great connection dude he goes on to say yep um, like Hong Kong Miami is a big city filled with lots of people with different cultural backgrounds uh, despite this diversity some people experience soul crushing loneliness only to feel uplifting when forming connections with others outside of their social circle. When it comes to people, never judge a book by its cover. Looks are superficial. The heart and soul is where the connection lies. Oh my God, so there you go. Dude. Out of their social circle. Yeah. Like, That's exactly oh what the connections yep. in Chunking Express are. That's amazing. Yeah, I was like, holy fuck. This dude <laughs> is like putting all these things I can't think about into right. the perfect words. Exactly. And now I feel like having seen Chunking Express, I want to go back and watch Moonlight again. Right, and exactly. And see how much of yep. a real direct influence it was. Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, that's so interesting. I Another thing i got to say that's really great about this movie that uh, I just learned about recently when I was reading about it, um, each segment, you know, part one and part two, I guess yep. the way to, to describe it, yep. uh, has a different cinematographer. Yep. And a different camera. 
which I think is that's more Whoa, obvious. Really? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. You can tell because there's way more of the, uh, and I, I love how the film starts out with all those like really grainy, really like the cameras like, like low around. FPS, yeah, like and, and and they're like almost like they're not slow motion, but they're like half motion shots, you know, yeah. like and and everything's really blurry. It and almost looks like like a slideshow. Yeah, and it kind of feels like I I don't know. It kind of I think it feels like how you feel when you're walking through a crowded city. You like don't see people's faces even though you do you know what i mean because yep, like absolutely. it's too much to take in there's so much going on um and yeah i love how the 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 whole first part is shot completely differently and like i said because you literally had a he just got a different cinematographer to come in That's and crazy. give you a totally different shot yeah and actually so one was a uh, a chinese cinematographer and i think the other one is an, Amer an american for the second part so you have a very very different style but um and I think, it, again, it's just that the, the putting those two against each other, you know, they're almost they're they're so similar, but they're also so almost like working against each other with that contrast with the day night, with the right. different cinematographers, with the different cameras, with the whole like the fact that the beginning feels more like a, a you know, French New Wave style, like on the run sort of short film. Where, you know, like like, you know, people like robbing stores and shooting cops and stuff. Uh and then the, the the second part is just like romantic comedy. It feels more <laughs> top to bottom movie than the yeah, first part. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it almost I, I almost describe the beginning as like a uh, like auntie scene, sort of like the you know, it's like a um, uh, appetizer. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> just a little tapas yeah. before the meal. The music in this movie is also really great, and it's particularly built around uh, three songs, which we mentioned a couple times, and they repeat themselves a lot. In and fact, they really awesome. It sounds yeah. lame when you say yeah. it like that. If you just told someone that, oh yeah, this movie like has like nine minutes of the movie has, yeah, has this one song yeah, playing. Nine <laughs> minutes of this film have California Dream playing in it. So, yeah. um. So yes, you have California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, a um, sort of like it starts out as sort of a theme for Fei Wong, but then becomes a theme for Cop Six Six Three as he starts to like the song as well. Uh, and then she moves on to a new theme song in, in my mind, at least, which is the Cranberry Song Dreams, which is actually sung by Fei Wong, who was a huge. She was actually like. She was like the Beyonce of Hong Kong at, at the time. She Damn. was like, yeah, or, or I don't know who the like number one recording artist is right now, like selling records, but she was. She was like the number one musical recording artist in Hong Kong in the mid-90s. Right. And so, yeah, this cover of, of the Cranberry Song Dreams by her is her singing. This is her, her day job. And this, is her, this was her first film. And she went on to make several more films and is pretty well-respected actress. And I think she does fantastic in this movie. Uh, I, and uh, the third song is another favorite of mine. What a Difference a Day Made, uh, performed by Dinah Washington, which is played during a scene between Tony Leung and Valerie Chow's characters, as well as an encounter between Tony Leung and Faye Wong's characters later in the film. And is kind of like the theme for... Uh, Tony Lung's first relationship and breakup, and then it disappears from the film. 
and I love that particular song is it's one of my favorite songs of all time because it's one of those that it's those those classic older like 50s and 60s songs that are so vague lyrically that they can fit like a thousand different feelings like they could be yeah. a breakup song or it could be you know someone's passed away or it could be like it fits like what a difference a day makes and the day is it and the difference is you like that that idea is so vague that it fits millions of emotions i forgot know? how much i liked that song it's until really i heard it like five times yeah <laughs> it's really, really good it's like oh man yeah it's definitely the one played i think it's the one played the least out of those um because california dream and, and dreams get played a lot yeah absolutely uh, but that's crazy that yeah. it's nine minutes of california yeah, dream. Nine, nine, nine minutes nine minutes yeah um so yeah it was my pick uh, I love this film, as I've said a bunch of times. Um, I I would grade this one five as well, honestly. I think this one should be in the canon. Yeah, I'm, we're going yeah. back to back in yeah. the canon. Yeah. I mean, it took me like a borderline three, wa- it was like two and a half watches for me to like completely oh, decide yeah. that. I think it's definitely a, you need to watch it twice. At, yeah. at least you need to watch it twice. Yeah, I think it's a it's an important film, and it's like... Um, it's sort of like a, a spot in film. I think it's it's way more influential on directors than than like we even thought as we found out you right. know, finding out about Moonlight and stuff like and uh I don't know, just to kind of wrap back around to that first the way that we started it all off, like it really is a film where it feels like not much happens, but but like you're entranced by what is happening. Um and it maybe it's because it's almost like an anti-film in a way. You right. Know, it's yeah, made yeah. like it's made like so different. It's so different in in every way from almost every film. And uh, and I mean, even like for instance, uh, there's and there's there's so much weird stuff about it. One of my other favorite stories about this film is uh, so Bridget Lynn who plays the woman in the blonde wig, which is her character's name in the film as well. <laughs> uh, she's a fantastic actress. She uh, was in a movie called Swordmaster, a.k.a. Swordsman 2, um, with Jet Li, in which she played a uh, male who had uh, castrated himself to become a god. Um, she is super range as an actress, was an amazing, amazing actress. And I say was because uh, for some reason, which I could not find, and maybe, you know, it's a cultural thing. It's a little bit more personal, so nobody actually really knows. Uh, this was her last film that she ever made. Oh, really? Yeah. She was wow. literally, they called her the, the Garbo of the East. And uh, she made, you know, countless films before this, but this was the last film she ever was in. And uh, wow. Yeah, big loss. Um, she doesn't have a ton to do in this film, but uh, she was a fantastic, she is a fantastic actress. I say was only because she's still alive. I, I say that only because she has not been in any film since 1994. But, uh, yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of weird, interesting stuff about this film. Um, I definitely suggest and recommend it, obviously. But uh, I also suggest looking a little deeper and researching a little bit more. Because um, I know whenever I do, I find out new stuff. So yeah did you know that it absolutely crushed the hong kong film awards in yes, 1995 did. yes i did know that best, best picture best director best actor best editing mm-hmm. those are all mm-hmm. the big, yep. big hits right there because and it was just because it was so fresh 
And the fact that it still feels that way today, you know, like I still feel like even even in its influencing, no one's ever really been as as brash and risky to go out and make Chunking Express again, you know, try to do what he did. Right. Again. And so, I, you know, and it's it's something that happens every once in a while in film. I think there's people who do interesting stuff. Um, I've recently covered a lot of uh, Panos Cosmatos's films. Um well, two, he's only made two, uh, Mandy and, and Beyond the Black Rainbow, again, as we mentioned earlier. Like, there's directors I'm interested in, uh, Ari Aster, you know, f- of uh, Hereditary and, and Midsummer. But, like, there isn't somebody that I'm like, they're doing something I feel like I haven't seen before. And and that's what I think Chunking Express is. And so films like that will always be timeless. Um, because no one ever wants, you know, it's hard to get that risky without someone then just, unless you just copy it. You know? Yeah. And especially nowadays too. Yeah. Even in the nineties at that point, I mean, it's film, it's been through a lot at that right. point. And I mean, there's a chance like in what we described, there's even a chance that we, this could have been a movie that he never like actually finished or was never serious about. So it's so amazing that it was so great when it really felt like he wasn't that serious about yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's just, just like, like a little side project. Yeah. It's like he took everything he knew about cinema and was like, I can just make a film if I just start. I have the actors. I have the cameras. Let's go. Let's just make a film. Like, well, well, I don't know. We'll we'll make it up as we go along. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah, I think I said it a few minutes ago, but I'd definitely give it a five, too. It's it's must-watch. So this week, we already have two that are in the canon. Jesus Christ. Let's see what happens. All the horses. In the next movie, we'll be back after one more short break here with The Fifth Element. Hell yeah, we will. Cosmos, and it is now 5 p.m. Time to join Ruby Rod and Corbin Dallas. Coming at you live from Austin. Aziz, light! He is the one and only winner of the Gemini Crockett Contest! This boy is fueled like fire! We'll start melting, ladies, because the boy is hotter than hot. He's hot. Last call for Flostum Paradise. Hurry up. I beat you. Sorry, man. Can you hear from Mr. Dallas? Uh, yeah. Congratulations on winning the contest. <laughs> right, okay. Sorry for the mess. The mess? Garbage. Oh, ah, I was so afraid I wasn't going to make this flight, so I sent uh, David here yeah. to come and pick up my boarding pass. But, um, but, but now uh, David has to go. Thank you. Bye. I am Corbin Dallas. Please report in and uh, this is? Lilu Dallas Multipass. Yeah. Multipass. Lila, uh, multipass. She knows it's a multipass. Lilu Dallas, my wife. We're newlyweds. Just met. Multipass. You know how it is. Bump into each other. Sparks multipass. happen. Yeah, she knows it's a multipass. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're in love. End of transmission. Okay, Ruby. See you tomorrow at 5. Le fifth element. Yeah, the fifth element, yeah. or as the French say, le fifth element. 
I was like, go back to that. You ever see C Lab 2021? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, the Frenchman. Yeah. It was so good. And what's the deal with this French guy? people like ever done to the womb. I was absorbed by Mother Ronchon in all her wondrous glory. What is he gibbering about? I don't know. It's French. It is very sensual. <laughs> the Fifth Element, a film that boldly states that maybe if you dropped that hotshot tough guy routine, you too could win the manic pixie dream girl of your dreams, you sexy science fiction cab driver, you. Yes, The Fifth Element, a weird, wonderful ride of a strange-ass film. A sort of science fiction, space opera, French new wave romance film that is likely the only time you'll see Tiny Lister and the British rapper Tricky on the same screen. And that's my official review. Signed, Kevin. Here's another review for you. I'm just going to get this out of the way right now. Luc Besson, the director and accused rapist by several women. I only say accused, not because I don't believe them, but because... That's what it says on Wikipedia. He's a rapist. Is a huge piece of shit. He did direct this film. So, in this episode, I guess part of what we were going to be doing is seeing if you can separate the art from the artist and the artist from the art. Or, like in the case of his other film, Leon the Professional, this film actually says more about its director and his own behavior. And, uh, as always, have your multi-pass ready. Hell yeah. Yeah. So fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah. We'll this get, movie's great though. Yes. Fuck. We'll we'll kinda talk about that a little bit. A little bit later. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about it, but I, I guess I will throw up a content warning. I'm not gonna get graphic. I'm not gonna talk about the what the women said or anything like that. That's not what this podcast is about. But I am just I want to warn people that yes, Luke Basson may be or again, I'm just gonna say it, he is a rapist. You know, he has been accused of rape by several women and uh he's there's some other stuff that i'm going to bring up later that doesn't make him look very good and maybe again it's a culture thing there's a thing in france and it's different from american culture and maybe i don't understand it but i'm not okay with luc besson uh so i just want to get that out of the way however i do really like this movie and so again, we're gonna, I think, kind of be looking at the idea of, you know, art and the artist, and and when, you know, can you read Mein Kampf and take it as a piece of art? I don't think so. Nope. But can you watch the fulfillment? Mm, take it as a piece of art. I don't know. Maybe like Bruce Willis. We'll see. I do like Bruce Willis. Yes. Nineteen ninety. So it is a nineteen ninety seven English language French science fiction action film. Runs at one hundred and twenty six minutes and is rated. PG-13. It was directed and co-written by Luc Besson, and it stars Bruce Willis, Gary Oldman, Ian Holm, Mila Jojovich, and Chris Tucker as Ruby Rod. Oh, wait, I got some more, too. Luke Perry, Tiny Lister, as I said before, and doing double duty this week. Double duty. Brian oh. James. Seems like there's always one. Yeah. There's always one. It's great. I just like when that happens. Like, I got yeah. really... I didn't know that, because, I again, I try not to look up and read too much about the movies before I watch them when I haven't seen them, like in the case of the player. So I was like very pleasantly surprised when he walked into the office and the player, and I was like, oh my God, it's fucking... Like, there he is! Yes, <laughs> Holy shit, I love that guy. Um, before you move on to anything yes. else, I just want to say that I think Corbin Dallas is one of the coolest movie character names 
of it all is time. Damn good. I think it's a fucking sick. He uh, name. originally had a different name. I'm not sure. I think I put it down in here. Um, this was like a a passion project of the director's that he started writing when he was like 16. Um, and so this kind of like was like a thing that he kept working on yeah, throughout for decades. Yeah, yeah, for decades. Yeah. Um, but yes, Corbin Dallas is a great name, and I think it really it really fits the. Uh, the feeling of this movie where I think this movie really is kind of a it's like sort of like Blade Runner meets Star Wars in a lot of ways. It has a lot of the trappings of both, you know, dystopian science fiction and also high fantasy science fiction um, and kind of meets right in the middle. So it feels really like like all over the place with those two themes. But I, I think it works. And and. Corbin Dallas like it's kind of like this weird science fiction-y style name that's also a real name meted, met, met with a very like cowboy yeah, style real, Texas yeah. last name yeah, obviously like a city western movie not like yeah. location wise but like western style exactly movie, you know? exactly it's de- like definitely very interesting Corbin Dallas so uh, the music in this film is also all over the place um, from that's a fact yeah from as we said opera to like sort of like i don't know electronica beats and and then just like some, some like pretty heavy like uh score music it's it's all over the place yeah a lot of different stuff a lot yeah, of world i feel like a lot of world music yeah i think it fits it fits the pacing of the movie yeah. though none of it feels out of place right. as it's happening and, and also the like strange multicultural brew uh, of this future. You know how... Yeah, like and there's several different locations mm-hmm. of it. It's, it yep. makes sense yep. what, what's happening when. Uh, so the music was by Eric Serra. Um, we got some cool taglines for this one. So the first one we got is, it must be found. But uh, the, it, the S it is a five. five yeah. <laughs> the found. S is a five. Like yeah. It's like some kid's AIM username yeah this one's up there with like neo tokyo's about to expload yeah <laughs> levels yeah right right yeah, <laughs> yeah um, or like a- alien 4 oh that was someone somebody in the group had that it was like alien 4 but they like worked the the 4 into the title i think it was like 4 alien yeah you know? yeah yeah Dude, yeah that's such a forced yeah, one is making right. the capital a a 4 right. it's but, like, that, it's but i was like that, that would have been that would have been okay you know it's kind of like alien 3n you know yeah 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 <laughs> exactly it would have been yeah that's all right um the other one we couple couple more uh there is no future without it it being the fifth element yes uh makes sense um 250 years in the future, all will be lost unless the fifth element is found. Yeah, see, it's self uh, recognizing. I like it. Um, This is is my personal favorite one. The fifth is life. Nice. Sounds like something that a booze bag says sitting (laughs) right outside of a liquor (laughs) store. He's sitting on the ground. He's like, man, it's the fifth right now. Hey, bro. Hey, bro. Just let me get a fifth of Jack in this (laughs) life. (laughs) Um, Another good one is. is it love or live? Or live? It's live. live. It's definitely live. live. Yeah, I think. <laughs> That's such a brutal one to read when you oh, don't man, know like, yeah. what Oh, man, yeah. Live, saying. live is a tough word. Is it love or live? Hey, man, you play <laughs> NBA live? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that situationally, you know what they're yeah. saying. It's so funny that it's like it, it bringing up NBA live like anybody plays that game anymore. It's all 2K now. Isn't that so weird how like yeah, times have changed? It's 2K. Yeah. Everyone's got 2K and chill. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, um, Yeah, and then the last one is... Time is not important. 
only life is important, which is like sort of a play on a, the quotes in the movie, right? Like, isn't the the guy who's asking for that weird ominous being who's asking for the stones? He's saying, uh, like, life isn't important. Yeah. Just like yeah. bring me the stones. Exactly. Yeah, so it's like yep. kind of like the opposite of that. Like what the what the protagonists are doing. Right. In right. The movie, right. Which is cool. Um, it had a pretty high budget, but not too crazy. Yeah. It was it biggest n- budget this week. Yeah. Oh, by far. Um, ninety million dollars was the budget, but mm-hmm. thankfully it was a box office smash yes. hit. It made two hundred and sixty three point nine million dollars. Yeah, it did really well in the box office, and it was actually kind of a surprise, which I think I will mention in a little bit here in some of this the background stuff we have on it. But yeah, it was definitely. I I honestly don't know how he got the money to do this. That's uh, a lot of fucking yeah. money. But uh, I'm I may even have an explanation on that. But anyway. Critics say uh, 71% fresh. Um, so not the best score, but it does have an 87% audience score. So for the most part, the audience uh, tended to like it a little bit more. Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles, T- Los Angeles Times described the film as an elaborate, even campy sci-fi extravaganza, which is nearly as hard to follow as last year's Mission Impossible. And I put this in because I was like, Mission Impossible is hard to follow? Really? No, it's really, not. guy. Really, no, guy. It's not. Like, I can understand this movie being a little bit hard to follow because there's a lot going on it. But Mission Impossible, man. Kevin Thomas, <laughs> come on. Uh, he concluded that the Fifth Element was a lot warmer, more fun, and boasts some of the most sophisticated, witty production and costume design you could ever hope to see. I don't know if he means it's a lot more warmer and more fun than Mission Impossible, but maybe. Um, Ebert and Siskel both gave the films a thumbs up. Uh, Ebert gave the film three out of four stars, calling it one of these great goofy movies, concluding, I would not have missed seeing this film, and I recommend it for its richness of imagery, but at 127 minutes, which seems a reasonable length, it plays long. Another one of my personal feelings about it, I was glad that that Ebert agreed with me, of all people. Um, But yeah, whenever I watch the film, I always feel like it's a little bit drawn out, and then I'm like, oh, this movie's not as long as I thought it was. Like... I don't know. I think it loses a little steam once it gets to the final act. And I agree. That, that That's a big dig, I think, on it. Uh, it also has quite a few harsh reviews. Uh, and it's, uh, especially a disapproval of its overblown style. That was the quote I found, and I really liked that description. It is very, very overblown. Um, a largely misfired European attempt to make an American sci-fi spectacular... The fifth element consists of a hodgepodge of elements that don't comfortably coalesce. Uh, David Edelstein of Slate was even more critical, saying it may or may not be the worst movie ever made, but it is one of the most unhinged. So, kind of split down the middle there, and honestly, I, I'm kind of... It's funny, I agree kind of with both there. Um, because, like, it's... It's a movie that has so much great going for it, but also has a lot of problems. And uh, I can definitely see like there's a there, there's a certain type of person I that I know, like the, like certain friends I have that I just be like they wouldn't like this movie. Like it's this is just not they would they would rip this thing apart. Oh yeah, you know. So Absolutely. like I definitely think it, it's uh, that both those criticisms were good. Um, both negative and positive. Yeah. Uh, 
So this movie was released on the 7th of May, 1997, uh, which was Father's Day mm-hmm. that year. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Yeah, you happy get Father's Day, element. Dad. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other movies that were released uh, non- around this, uh, actually on the same day, were The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, and Gone Fishing. You know, fun fact about the Lost World Jurassic Park thing? It, they had the same, pretty much the same budget. Really? Yeah, those two movies. How much and, did Lost World make? Uh, like I 50 million? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, not, 500 not million or whatever? Lot, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> it made like, more. Yeah. I think it made more than this, though. It had to Most have. likely, yeah. But um, apparently at the time, since this, this uh, Fifth Element technically isn't like a U.S. film, yep. um, it was the most expensive non-U.S. film. Up to like to yeah. that point, yeah. and for like a yeah, few most years expensive forward, French it was the and most expensive yep. non-U.S. and it was film. the highest grossing French film until like 2011. Really? Yeah. It was, Holy uh, shit! The Untouchable, uh, the Intouchables, this French comedy film with a um a a uh, Af- a African born and or not African born, I think it was French born, but an African and a um and an older f- white French comedian, and it was like a like. Two two buddies type like buddy comedy movie yeah became they I've never seen it but I guess you know France is weird about shit like that they love Jerry Lewis man dude you know? <laughs> they love like weird comedy like even if you just like to, again to talk about oh the French God. new wave they love like weird ass comedy in in the middle of a movie that's about killing your fucking parents because you're rich kids oh, shout out shit. to Weekend yeah, by Goddard dude. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, so for music around this point, we got the biggest hater of them all for these three, fucking United States, bumping hypnotized by the notorious B.I.G. Which is a, probably the best song yeah. of all the the six that we're doing in this one. Oh man! And then, means, but in the UK, they were yeah. listening to "Love Fool" by the fucking Cardigans. The Cardigans, man. So that's a fucking jam too. Yeah, oh I honestly didn't think I was going to think about the Cardigans ever again. Honestly, here they I are. listened to, there's a Spotify playlist that's just called 90s Pop Rock Essentials. Nice. Nice. I listen to it very frequently. 90s like, Pop Rock Essentials. Dude, like, I'd be at a, like, we're bartending, working, and just throw the playlist on, and everyone oh, yeah. in the room, they oh, don't man. know that they know every word to every song. That is, like, now do. the official, like, bar playlist. It totally is, because yeah, like, you want to listen to, like, Barely Breathing by right. Duncan Sheik, oh, and maybe, God. like, a little roll to me by Della oh, Vitri, dude. There's a lot of hitters in there. Maybe a little flagpole yeah, sitta. You know what? I, not you know, sick, but I'm yeah, also not you know, well. I know. I like that. I like that. <laughs> but, you know, if you could spin me a little one headlight by the wallflowers, yeah. <laughs> I'd be feeling pretty good. How about you uh, throw in some Eve hey, 6? Uh, stop, stop this one and put on Save Tonight by Eagle yeah, Eye Save Cherry. Save Tonight right? by Eagle Eye Cherry. Hey. <laughs> I'm um, just feeling good. Also, around that... <laughs> <laughs> Just feeling good, trying to have a little '90s powwow right now. All right, um, around that time too, it was uh, on May 11th. The Spice Girls performed their first British live gig 
for the Prince yeah. Trust. For Prince fucking Charles. <laughs> yeah. 21st anniversary concert at the Manchester Opera House, which is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. They break royal protocol by Chris, uh, kissing the Prince of Wales on the cheek. Yes. And even pinching his ass. Can you imagine the Spice Girls pinching, pinching Prince Charles's bottom? Oh, my God. Could you, you imagine at, what see, they would do? See, like, you said ass, but it's his bottom. It does say right bottom. Here. Yeah, it does. It's. I mean, we might have just yeah. broke protocol. Yeah. By saying yes, ass. We, we broke royal <laughs> protocol by saying by saying the prince's ass. Oh my god! And then to continue on with the Spice Girls, yes, because news. it was the year of the spice, dude. Seriously, all, it's always the year yeah. of the spice. But this particularly this year was Spice Girl mania. Oh my god! What I was this? Ninety seven. Ninety seven. Ninety seven. Okay. Uh, on May fifteenth, the Spice Girls album Spice reaches number one on the U.S. charts, making them the first British act to top the charts with a debut album. That's fucking right. This was the year of spice yeah. world you know who didn't do that the fucking shitty beatles yeah that's right the beatles <laughs> suck compared to the spice girls L- listen to that hey hey excuse me excuse me uh paul mccartney excuse me did your debut album debut at number one no because no, you're not as good as the spice girls <laughs> take that no, yeah, Beatlemania, yeah. spice spice world what is better uh pff, the numbers yeah tell us. definitely on. hard day's night or spice world don't even uh, get don't even yeah, start uh, it's spice world <laughs> Um, I I also realized earlier when you uh, were talking about Biggie that you did not realize that Hypnotized was a uh, released post posthumously. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, yeah. I just didn't or say you, that. You didn't I just say didn't that, say yes. that because uh, in March of this year, uh, Biggie was murdered. Oh, that was a sad thing you were talking about earlier. That was a sad oh, thing I, I didn't read right ahead and see yes. that. Oh. yes. Um, yeah, Fuck. the. <laughs> The uh, the that was I always forget was he before Tupac or was I think he was before Tupac I can't remember no somebody's gonna school me on this I'm sorry guys but I can't remember who got killed first in that one but sadly we lost two really great artists I know now there's a bunch of fucking douchebags who try to act like Tupac and Biggie weren't that good and it's like dude just because you don't like the music now doesn't mean it's not the reason why you exist as a rapper Those today people can shut the fuck yeah up. they really can. A nigga rapping about blunts and broads, tits and bras, menage a trois, sex and expensive cars, and still leave you on the pavement. Condo paid for, no car payment, at my arraignment. Well, I can understand, like, stylistically, if you don't, like, listen to that type of hip-hop, you're not going to like it, but don't act like they're not fucking important, <laughs> ever, yeah, like, you know? God, I can't remember who said Tupac sucked, but I want to fucking punch that guy. Yeah, if you said Tupac sucked and you're listening it was to like, this, it was like, I'm going to punch you. It wasn't Lil Uzi, but it was somebody like that. It was one of those fucking... Oh, in, yeah, one of the new... Ra- yeah, 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 it was I one of those fucking, was, you know, yeah, yeah. little Xanax or some fucking bullshit, you know? I fucking literally I'll Xan. yeah no literally I'll fight I'd fight little Zan man I'd fight him not with oh, a gun because he'd probably pull a gun on me because yeah. he's a fucking idiot but like Ugh. seriously those guys are all fucking stupid Dude, he'd be too fucked up on Zans he couldn't shoot a gun hey man I've had three beers I'll fight little Zan <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm just bring kidding. me little Zan yeah, yeah bring him to me <laughs> So in video games, uh, this okay. So the '90s was awesome for video games. Uh, first of all, and this year, right around the same time, we had three awesome and some of my favorite old school like Doom style shooters: uh, Shadow Warrior, Blood, and MDK. All came out in May of this year. I was fuck like, yeah, "Fuck yeah!" Um, basically, it was like Doom for three studios that weren't ID. Yeah. Um. And they are all really great games. Uh, but this year we also had, and this is just a sample because there was even more, but I just picked the absolute best ones. 
GoldenEye 007, Star Fox 64, Torok Dinosaur Hunter, Mortal Kombat 4, Diddy Kong Racing, Grand Theft Auto, and Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Wow. Yeah. So that was there wasn't much else for video games that year, but lots of releases. I'm pretty sure everyone listening yeah. to this has played probably every single one. Pretty of much those all of them. Games. Yeah, or at least they're all so fucking good. Right. Maybe you didn't play Turok. Maybe you didn't play Castlevania. Maybe you didn't play this Grand Theft Auto. Maybe you didn't play Grand Theft Auto one. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Played, Maybe you yeah, definitely played exactly. a different one. But dude, exactly. everyone played Goldeneye. Everyone played Star Fox Explorer. Everyone played Diddy Kong Racing. Exactly. Those are all like Total generational pieces. Oh, yeah. I think that Torok maybe isn't as big of a game now, but I know in its time, it was huge. And GoldenEye, obviously, like the James Bond franchise, hasn't really fared well since it, but, but it's a it's a milestone. Dude, GoldenEye you know? is still, to this day, played right. all the and, time. And it changed. I mean, it really, I think, more than any game except for maybe Halo, Halo kind of took the torch from it. GoldenEye was the first first person shooter since the original, since Doom, that like felt new and fresh and different and was like it was like the next generation for a little while. And I think Halo really took over from that, you know. Yep. But yeah, it's it's probably one of the most inf- influential games on like m- current modern day gaming, probably ever. Totally. So I wish Perfect Dark got as much love as Goldeneye well, does. There is oh, wait, so Perfect Dark. I think is also it has the problem with being an older game, and like you, there's a I believe it was a Xbox remake they did a few you know a little oh, while yeah, ago. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they sure. well, and they updated the controls so they're modern. First-person shooter controls. Well, it's it's way 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 more like efficient, you know. Of course, that old style. Like when you if when I go back and try to play like a Goldeneye game, you're like, oh my god, I forgot. Like this isn't. You're you're so used to having the two joysticks and like being able to look around so easily and stuff that not having that and being like, oh yeah, I have to like do that like strafe run sort of thing and and use auto aim to shoot people and stuff right, like right. it was it, and, and i think perfect dark had worse it, I, if i remember correctly it had a worse controller setup than goldeneye did it was like the same idea but kind of didn't work in the way the game wanted you to play you know what i mean right, and right so i love perfect dark but i definitely would suggest if you can play it on the the re-released version with with updated controls it's it's even better right it, i don't think i ever played that so i'll have to give that a go yeah because it, 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 it's kind of a game that was i think perfect dark more so was trying to be like games like doom where it was like fast-paced and frenetic but also like had this technical aspect to it Whereas Goldeneye, with that auto-aim, it just feels like you're kind of like, okay, now I'm running, shoot this guy. Like, if you could learn a level, you could get through it easily. Right, Um, right, right. And I I think Perfect Dark really built more on what they had done and was a much more, like, I feel like Rare put more into Perfect Dark because it was was their own IP as opposed to being like, well, this is a James Bond game. Yeah, you got to include all these characters. Yeah, it, it probably sold half of its copies on, just on Goldeneye, the movie, and, and the James Bond franchise and shit. Oh, so. billion percent. Yeah. So, Basson approached both Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson for the lead role. Willis expressed interest, but he was reluctant to take on the role for the film was considered risky, uh, especially after his f- last two films, which were Hudson Hawk, 
which is n- not a very good film, but was a really it was it's like a weird film that has like cartoon sound effects in it, and it was like an attempt that just missed the mark completely. Uh, and Billy Bathgate, which is a mob movie starring Dustin Hoffman in the lead role as a mobster. Right. Yeah, and Bruce Willis dies in like the first half hour. So <laughs> uh, so he didn't really think he was going to do it, but Gibson actually turned down the role. And uh, the way that Bruce Willis got it is that uh, Basson was in... Uh, another producer's office talking to this producer about a different movie and Bruce Willis called this producer unrelated about another movie and someone's like oh you're talking to Bruce oh, let me tell you I know Bruce let me I'll say hi to him talking to him on the phone Bruce was like hey well what's going on with that that fifth element movie and he was like oh we at that time he they had decided to go with a no you know a lesser name actor a a you know cheaper actor basically and he was like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're not going to go for a big star. We're going to you know, go for somebody smaller. And Willis was like, well, you know, how much? Like, basically, I mean, I'm not, I didn't say I didn't want to do it. You know, like, and so he was like, all right. And they figured it out. And so basically he like kind of, it feels like he almost like tricked him into, into doing it. Like he like confront, in a sense, confronted him with the idea that he wasn't going to be in the movie for sure. And Willis was like, well, well, you know, maybe, maybe I will do the movie, you know? And I almost wonder if he was kind of, he didn't have anything, you know, really going on that excited him, but this script really excited him. This movie really excited him. He thought it was risky, but he's like, I think this might be something cool. I like want to do this. And then, so when he didn't have anything else going on, he's like, I, I, maybe let's do this fucking movie that's risky and go for it. Yeah. And, and give it a shot. Yeah. I think it paid out. I think it paid off for him. You know, it's funny that I, when I read that little piece, I looked that, looked that little part up and found out that. The other two leads were supposed to, so originally it was going to be Mel Gibson, Julia Roberts, and Prince. Yeah, Prince was supposed yeah, to be Chris Rod. Tucker's character. Yep. Yeah, 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 and uh, Prince was just not like didn't like the costume design. Yeah, it just wasn't yep. into it. And apparently there were some production delays and things like that. I feel like would have typically pissed Prince off. Right. And Prince like, nope, nope, nope. There was nope. also a thing I read that he, uh, originally the character had a different name, and they changed. And it was a male, like a more male sounding first name. But they changed it to have that like sort of juxtaposition of like Ruby being sounding like more feminine and then Rod being very like masculine. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Prince said that he thought the costume design was too effeminate. Yeah, yeah, which is which like, is weird for Prince, Prince to come say. On, yeah, man. I'm like, what? That's well, like I mean, thing. I I think honestly, I think Prince thought he was masculine, you know, and uh, not not to say that he wasn't masculine, but I think that that the thing that he really had going for him was the ability to be beautifully masculine and beautifully feminine at the same time. Yeah, like, like he had the boundary push. Yeah, he was like almost androgynous in ways, you know. Right. And I thought that he played that up a whole lot. So, but it, in a lot of the stuff I read about him, it seems like he thought he was like a real man's man. <laughs> and it's yeah. just like, well, I get it. Yeah, I mean, like he probably fucked a whole bunch of women, and that, that's a fact. That's a, like, I guess that makes you a man's man. But like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like you, you're very small, yeah, <laughs> and oh a, effeminate, and God. like I feel like I could just like pick you up <laughs> on my shoulder, you know. Rest in peace, Rest buddy. In peace, I love yeah. everything. That oh, Prince I love ever Prince did. too. Yeah, I mean, fucking. Uh, uh, I think that honestly, um, I want to be your lover. Might be like one of the best songs ever made. Oh, uh, yeah. 
guy was uh, on another level. Yeah. Like, and it's he's one of those artists that I think he's like you have to be like you have to be like breadcrumbed into his music because it's so complex and there's weird so and different. Much of oh, it, there's so too. much going on, you know. Um, but yeah, that's our Prince power. Yeah, minute. we <laughs> love Prince. Yeah, Prince is great, <laughs> and. I actually am glad that he wasn't in this movie, though. Me too. I think it would have been sort of like one of those, like, uh, it'd be a gimmick. Yeah. You know, more than... Based on, like, the writing for that character itself, too. I could not see Prince doing any of that stuff Chris Tucker did. I can't see him doing it like Chris Tucker did. No, not And becoming literally the, probably the most memorable character from the film. Honestly, I might just go and say, I was going to say other than Mila Jojovic, but, but... I think he might even be more memorable no, than her. Memorable. It's great. He's got like the Jar Jar Binks ish kind of. Yeah, like. yeah. He kind of takes over his whole. Even though he's in it so little, he takes over the whole film. With, yeah, you know. I think when you mention the Fifth Element to people, the first thing they yeah. think about is Chris Tucker. Yeah. So one of my my uh, issues, I guess, with this film is um, that also I think is it's it's like alternatively interesting, but also I always have a problem with with like male centric films. Uh, it is kind of weird that like there's very little uh, there's very little women in this film like at all, and the ones that are there serve like very particular roles. In fact, uh, until until the scene where where you first see Mila for the first time, there's only one other woman in the whole film so far, and it's uh, the president's like pixie cut haircut girl like assistant. Oh right, right. And right. who literally just like stands there and doesn't really do anything. Um and then after that, the other women you see are like the, you know, flight attendants and the 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 woman at the like ticket desk and there's it's it's a very like man's world type of film and I I think that that's kind of a major drawback to it when the central like godlike character is a female and essentially it feels like the what happens in this movie is that like she has to accept that Bruce Willis really loves her and trust him in order for them to save the world. And like, if she had just trusted him at the beginning, then the rest of the movie wouldn't have happened. Right. Yeah. You know? And so I kind of have some problems with that. Not just like, you know, from a, a political or belief, you know, context but also just from like how the film plays out i i kind of have some problems with how the film goes uh in the third act really i think the end of the film is kind of lackluster compared to the rest of it and i don't think it answers any questions that you really have other than like the main like will they save the world and will yeah, these two end up the together element? did they save yeah. the planet yeah, it's, it's like, like what about the mysterious guy who's can you know the the boss of gary oldman's character you know like what about that you know yeah, what about never killed yeah <laughs> what about the fucking giant robot suit aliens like like there's so much like left just kind of floating at the end of the picture that i i have some serious issues with with that part of it like i still love the movie i still have like i mean there's so many great parts in it i do think at its heart it feels more like 
a classic French new wave film. I mean, like it's about a cab driver and a manic pixie dream girl and they're, you know, on the run from like the cops or whatever. And, yeah. and like, but there's never any like, like, it never feels like they're never ever in any real danger. They're too cool for that. No, you know? Yeah. It's like anytime there's a slight sense of danger, it's like Bruce Willis, the manly man right. of the movie comes swoops in and right. resolves the situation. And and also like I mean I I will say too like it, as far as what I was saying uh, a few seconds ago about about how it treats female characters, uh, I, I Mila Jojovich does fantastic in this movie. Um, and I like I do like the fact that like her character is presented as like this godlike being, but it still feels like she's subservient you know, to Corbin's character. And I, I just always find that kind of weird, especially when I'm going to tell you this. So um, my favorite scene of this movie is the opera scene. Um, and I, I mean, not just the opera song itself, but also the, the fallout and uh, the attack by, by the aliens and the death of, of the diva. And then Bruce Willis pulling the stones out of her. I love that scene. It's my favorite part of the movie. Um, that particular uh, song is using music from Donizetti's Lucia di Lamamore. Um, and it is called The Mad Scene, Act 3, Scene 2. It's a great uh, piece of music. It is a scene that happens after the main one of the main characters has killed her husband. Um, and is pretending that he she is he is still alive. She's essentially the, the song is her like being like, oh, there you are. How are you? like like talking to the audience, pretending that they're her that they are her dead husband. Um, and that actress who plays the diva uh, was at the time dating Luc Besson. Um, they met when she was fifteen years old and started dating when she was pretty young. Uh, she had a daughter when I believe she was 17. And this is all legal in France, by the way, at the time. Uh, and uh, he left her in this movie to be with Mila Jojovich. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, God. So. Fuck. Yeah. Um, what the Have you seen fuck? Leon the Professional? Yeah. She describes that movie as their as based on them. Uh, yeah. yeah. God. Yeah. Fuck. So to kind of go back to what we said at the top here, it's tough sometimes to separate uh, art from an artist, especially when the artist and their their outside of their art uh, proclivities tend to leak into the film. I think this uh, film has heavy overtones of like male control over females and stuff like that. And I do think in a lot of ways it, it is uh, a look into Basson's own feelings about men and women. I mean, I mean, he said he's been working on it since he was a fucking kid. Exactly. No, like, exactly. And I mean, oh I think God. that, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said about the, you know, the fact that, you know, Bruce Willis or alternatively, if it had been Mel Gibson, right. are both much older than Mila Jojovich. That. Yep. So. I mean, same thing with like, if it was Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Same kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, And I, I think in a lot of ways it is hard to uh 
exclude that from your feelings when you're watching this particular film, especially now, just like research that stuff. I still like this movie. Um, I still think it is worth watching, but I do think that it is the weakest film this week by far. Oh yeah, yeah. like not even in the same yeah. like ball field. Yeah, as those other yeah, two, exactly. I'm pretty sure, you know exactly. Um, I would go so far as to give it. I'm gonna give it a four point five. Whoa! Like, yeah, I do think it's a great movie oh, though. Four point five. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think it's in the canon. Right. I don't think it's a movie that has to be seen. I think it is a movie that should be seen, and I recommend it. I'm, like, teetering the line of 3.5 and 4. Yeah. I'm, yeah. like, somewhere in that area. Because I think, I think it's a good movie. I, I think there's a lot of, of cool things in it. If you're into that sort of, right. like, like, French New Wave, um, hyper-realistic right, right, kind right. of thing. It's it's a cool watch. I don't think it's a must watch movie. Yeah, no. I don't think I'm gonna stop somebody. Like I'll I'll stop somebody and tell them that they need to watch the player and that they need to watch like Chunking right, Express. Right. I'm not gonna tell you, you need to watch the Fifth Element. True, true. You know? I do think though, like, I mean, it, you know, four maybe. I, I just think it's more than good. I do think that it. Is, I do too. I I think it's above know. average. Right, and I think a lot. There's a lot to be said too about the kind of film it is and how successful it is. Um, I do. There's so many like moments that I love, like the scene where the dude tries to rob him with the like hat that has a picture of his apartment, like outside. Yeah. yeah, That's hilarious. Um, That's hilarious. There's a lot of really great things about it. Do you think it would have been as successful of a film had Bruce Willis not been the lead? Um, like uh, take Mel Gibson away from it. Don't even okay, think, so don't even say, think about it. Well, let me just Mel say, Gibson. first of all, if it had been Mel Gibson, uh, maybe, but not as, not as popular. Something like, but what, like when like, was, if what it, year did Die Hard come out? 89. Okay. So like, yeah, it was definitely late 80. So I think, I think. Uh, if it had been Mel Gibson, it would have been successful, but it would have not been as successful. If it had been another actor, I don't think it would have been successful at all. I think it that w- Bruce Willis's charisma um, really carried this picture for American audiences. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think that it was so commercially successful and acclaimed and implanted in people's brains because of not only i mean obviously like we said chris tucker too right but bruce willis being right, like yeah and chris tucker wasn't really like chris tucker as we know right that was just now, like mainly you know? the eccentric character that you're right, like oh my right. god the fifth element with that crazy it was like dude. hey that guy was in rush hour you know? yeah, yeah exactly like really footprints yeah this was kind of like his his stepping towards you know yeah yeah and i i don't know i think uh I think it could have been successful, definitely. Like, I'm not going to just say, oh, no. But I do think that, yeah, Bruce Willis's particular brand of charisma and, and uh, I don't know, he the, the character just fits him really well. I do think it would be harder to pull it off. with. It. Honestly, though, it's not just him. Um, we kind of skipped over her a little bit, but uh, Mila Jojovich is fantastic in this movie. Yeah, she's so good. Yeah. She goes through like a good portion of the movie without saying anything. She actually, that's a language that was made up. I think it contained 500 words. It was a language that was made up by her and the screenwriter and, and Basson. 
Um, and her and Luc Besson used to write letters to each other in that language. And yeah, that's how the whole relationship started. Dude, what the so, fuck? Yeah. Again, it gets back to weirdness, but God, it, it is still, weird. yeah. Fuck. I mean, I, again, like I can't, I'm not going to sit here and defend a uh, straight up, you know, statutory rape or pedophilia or anything like that. No way. But I am going to also say that, like, I don't understand France, French culture. And apparently what he did was legal in France at the time. So, like, I'm against it. But, like, there is that. If it was illegal, there's a chance that, like, I don't know, he would have been a worse person. There's a chance he wouldn't have done anything. But it would have had these... I mean, it's not like he wouldn't have been this person... I, I guess, or wouldn't have had these thoughts and, and desires and shit. So, like, it's really hard for me not to just straight up be like, I don't want to talk about this guy. Honestly, like, when this film came up, I was like, ooh, going to have to talk about Luc Besson because, like, I, I don't want to ignore it. I don't want to just sit here and talk about the fifth element. And act blindly, like it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just act like everything's cool. No, the guy I, the guy is a rapist, like, you know, and and if you analyze the film and you see shit and you look at the guy's life and you go, wait a minute, I don't know, man. You look at a white fucking barn and you call it white. It was fucking white, you know? Yeah. Like, and that's what I'm I'm kind of feeling here. So I agree. While I like this movie, I, I just, I can't, um, I can't give it a higher rating than, than 4, 4.5. I'm highest, locking in at a 3.5. All right. So uh, that means it definitely didn't win this week. No, that didn't. So sorry, guys, but we're going to take a final break, and then we'll come back for uh, the decision on who is the better movie this week. All right, so Dylan, here we are. At the Here Brits. we are at the end at the Elite Three. I am so having trouble with this. I am. I, I don't know if it's I can. It's a scary pick. world. It's a scary <laughs> world. It's hard for me to pick between these two films. As I was just saying to you, uh, when we were talking about this, I Chungking Express is, means so much to me. Uh, in my like personal film lexicon, my personal film canon, like it's a film that I saw literally like almost directly after I saw Pulp Fiction. Um, for me, it's like when guys like that and girls like that talk about you know the films of like Agnes Varda and Goddard and stuff like this is that this Chunking Express was that for me. If I ever ever got to make a film and, and got successful as a director, I'd be mentioning, oh, Chunking Express inspired me. You right. know, like, I get, it's one of those films. But The Player is a film that I feel like I'm going to be feeling that way about in 10, 20 years. Like, um, and it's a film I wish I had watched at the same time or around the same time because it's fantastic. It, it and so it's really hard for me to decide which one I actually think is better, but I think it's the player. Um, and that's specifically because I think the player is a film that, uh, like, even though in my personal opinion, Chunking expresses, I would rate it higher. It, 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 the player is a film that I think speaks to more audiences. Um, and speaks to them in a language that they can understand a little bit better. And so, like, 
in the terms of like what I think is a better movie overall, I think it's the player, but I still think that both of them are like really close. Like even though I'm saying that like Chunking Express is like seconds behind, it's like neck and neck photo finish here, right, you know, right, like right. It, so I'm going to give it to it. I mean, they're both in the canon, so they're both getting the high rating right. and, and going in. But I, I do think the player is is the better movie this week. I I've my I think my vote is the exact same as yours being the player, then Chunking Express, and then obviously Fifth Element at yep. the end. But if you took everything that you just said and put it in reverse, that's exactly how I feel about Chunking Express. Right. Like, it's something that I was oblivious to before I watched it, and then I watched it, and it was something that was so fresh, so unique, It, I immediately watched it twice. Yeah. Like, as soon as it ended, I that's was awesome. like, okay, I gotta, like give this a wheel up right now and just start going right. again. I feel like there's more that I saw on the second watch through that I didn't catch on the first. There's just so much related, like relatable content in it too. And that's, yeah. so, I have a soft spot in movies for that stuff where they're, they're like, it's like hyperbole that you can feel right in real life. You know, th- there's things that are happening in this movie. There, there's like, there's love, there's loss, there's, like there's grief there's like overcoming there's things that the everyday human can relate to like i was saying earlier when we were comparing it to moonlight that there's just like and there's like adaptions from other cultures there's something about the the human need to to just fill yourself all the time with something you know and like when when your first plot line in chunking express where you are immediately introduced to this guy with loss He's trying to right. to fill that void. He's trying right. to make up for that loss. I think that's something that Damn. everyone has felt. I think you just changed my mind. What? <laughs> nope, you already said it. <laughs> no, I'm picking Chunky. No, no, you already said it. No, 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 no. No, but damn, that was really good. You no, literally, I was just like, fuck, man. Now I'm thinking, because it, it, okay, it's like, I guess I would say like the player is more technically sound. It's more put together. But maybe that's what makes Chung King Express so great is the fact that, like, as we said, it was literally just kind of like this thing that they kicked together. But you can say that about it, you know? Like, yeah. it's, it's like, it's, it's like, like accidental brilliance. Don't even think about that right. kind of thing. And right. then, like, 20 minutes later, you'll be talking about it and realize that you can relate to almost every single situation happening in that movie. Yeah. But when it comes down to the player, it's, there's so, there's such a unique right. take on cinema. It feels older and newer than it is at the same time like somehow when i'm watching it it's like it released in 92 it you're looking at it it looks like a movie that was released in like the early 80s late 70s but it it's uh, giving you these things that you've never seen before right, for a movie right. of that time you know like the the fading sequences the the like pivotal like shifts of who's the focal point mm-hmm. it's just there's so much yeah. newness I mean, to it. Yeah, honestly, I could give it just for the the seven minute opening shot, which is yeah, it's something that is just so fucking appealing to the yep. eye, you know. Yeah, and it, and to think of what went into make it, it making that shot, pull it, pulling it off to you know completely, it's all this stuff that goes into it and all this behind the scenes stuff that not just the camera work and the actors but the crew, the sound design, like it's very complete. Um, yeah, it's very self-realizing, and it's—I don't know—that's that's a movie that I could watch over and yeah. over and over again. Yeah, totally. And that's my my totally. pick for the week too. Yeah. 
I think in a little in a little way we have like a spiritual tie. Yeah, I think with the player one. <laughs> like it's really they're so damn close Watch to each other. Watch them both right yeah. now. Really, really. Watch they're both, both they're both fantastic. Um so uh one little last thing I want to start doing at, at the end here. Uh is there anything that uh any other movies you've watched recently that you'd like to uh talk about or give a shout out to? <laughs> You caught me at a bad week, man. I just I did. went I caught saw, you. I ca- I I just off guard saw seven. Too. I just saw seven fish shows in the past yeah, like, you did. two See, and a half yeah. weeks. I haven't watched a damn thing <laughs> other than these three movies and Stranger Things. That's pretty much where it's I'm at good. right it's now. It's all good. It's all good. What about um, you? I've been watching a lot of re- uh, movies lately, but a few of them, actually a handful of them, are for stuff that we're gonna be. I'm gonna be covering in the future with guests or or with you. Uh, so I did watch Society. And the stuff which I'll be covering with uh, Erica and Alex in an episode coming up soon, and hard to take it to Hawaii, um, which I'll be covering with with a friend of mine, Jamie, in an episode soon. But uh, as far as like new films, um, other than Beyond the Black Rainbow, which I, we mentioned a couple times, and I did an episode on recently. Uh, the other new film that I watched and um, kind of wrapped up in this whole like French New Wave thing that we got going on is uh, a film that like I went into it with like a very specific idea of what I thought I was going to see and I was completely wrong and uh, I'm just going to kind of like leave it at that. Um, I'm actually, I forget exactly what the fucking title was. It was the, oh my God, the girls of Rochefort, the young girls of Rochefort, uh, by Jacques Demy. It's, uh, it's a movie that the reason I watched it is because next week we're going to be covering, um, the films that were winners of the Best Cinematography Academy Award. And this was uh, your pick for a theme. And uh, so you picked a film with Gene Kelly, uh, An yes, American I in did. Paris. An uh, American so in Paris. I had heard about this film, uh, The Young Girls of Rochefort, which stars Gene Kelly. And uh, I decided to give it a watch. It is maybe my favorite film in terms of color. It is... It, like it, the it, it's on like, it, like yeah it almost feels like um what spike lee did and do the right thing by like okay. painting everything having his you know set designers paint everything like so brightly multicolored and like these really like strong like there's like just pink and yellow walls and buildings and stuff it's it's a musical as well and right. uh but it is oh my god it's really good uh i don't I mean it doesn't even I think wouldn't even touch my like top twenty list of all time, but it damn comes close and I would, you know, really highly suggest it. Fuck yeah, man. So, I'm gonna watch it. Yeah, I don't wanna like talk too much about what goes on in it, but it is a great movie. And if you like very specifically like old movie musicals, which I'm a huge fan of Me like sixties movie musicals, yeah, it, you'll really like it. Got a then, weird yeah. little soft spot for those too. Yeah. And uh, it is also, as you said, French New Wave, so there's a lot of weird stuff and some rule-breaking going on that's pretty fantastic right? as well. So with that, we have uh, wrapped up this episode 30, which means that we have now started season three 
or whatever of my movies better. I've just kind of broken it down into yeah, t- yeah. ten episode yeah. intervals. I mean, fuck it. Yeah, and we do like more, you know, we do just like side episodes and stuff in between it. But so like we're actually at like forty something total episodes. But uh and that means that we are going to be moving on into, as I said, next week's episode. Um and I picked the film Barry Lyndon, which won the uh, that Academy Award in 1980. I think it was no, no, that was hmm, 1976, maybe. Um, regardless, yeah. it won the award, and you picked, as I said, American in Paris, which did pretty well in the award. <laughs> yeah, it did it very won well. Best picture, best art, best cinematography, best costume, best music, yes. best writing. <laughs> It was very, a it's a good things. movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm pretty sure from what I've heard. I have never seen it, but I have heard oh so much about it from reading about film and movies. Uh so I'm pretty excited to see it. Uh I love I actually really love Gene Kelly. Yeah, uh, I'm very singing, excited to see yeah. Barry Lyndon too. Barry Lyndon is I gotta fantastic. strap myself me. into a seat yes. and just sit there for about four hours. Officially, and watch this. officially Barry Lyndon will be the longest movie we have covered so Holy far. Holy shit, yeah. really? Oh it my is, god. Yes. Wow. Nice. Um and some others that are uh on the voting because we have not quite gotten uh all the votes in yet. Um for the group pick, uh, but some movies that have been kicked around so far that may be brought up are The Third Man, the Orson Welles classic, uh, Birdman, uh, or the great whatever movie. the fucking subtitle is. Yeah, yeah. what the fuck? Um, it's called Birdman. Yeah, I did, it's a great Christ, movie. That's what uh, I said. <laughs> Michael, Michael Keaton. Uh, Blade Runner 2049, which I covered in an episode I did by myself a little while Never ago. Never saw it. It's pretty good. It's yeah. pretty good. I, I'd be I'd be interested to uh, to reappraise it and to, for you to see it. I think right. you should see it anyway. But uh, it, I'd love to do an episode on that. And another film which is really important to me, which I would love to cover, uh, Apocalypse Now. Dude, that's in my top ten. I'm pretty sure. I don't I, I don't have it's, an established yeah. top ten like you do, but I think that that would be in there if I it's, did. It's a damn good movie. It's a fucking it's a awesome movie. movie. Uh, years ago when they re-released it. The Apocalypse Now Redux. Um, Redux. Yeah. Um, my mom brought me to uh, the Boston Common Theater and we saw it. So I got to see it on like giant screen. And oh, that's awesome. I was blown away. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, I was probably like, I was sometime when I was in high school, but right. yeah. So I would love to cover any of those films. Yeah. Please. Uh, yeah. Vote, there's, vote, a, vote. there's so many on that list. Uh, the Thief of Baghdad is another one that I know I'm the only one in the world who wants to cover that film. So probably won't have, but <laughs> there's so many good films on the list. Yeah. Even if it doesn't get picked to be what we cover, tell me what your yeah. favorite one is because I want to watch it. Because exactly. if it won Best Cinematography, it's probably yeah. pretty cool. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's the best picture. Yeah. We were talking about that yeah. earlier. Definitely. Uh, that's how I feel too. Even though there were plenty of films that deserved it, it didn't win because they were not American films or they weren't big in America or whatever. I think for the most part, it is yeah the 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 best some more of the best films are on there, you know. Yeah. And films that probably deserve to win best picture won this award instead. Right. 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 So uh, I mean, it's one of those things where like you know, it's an award where you look at it and you're like. Are you kidding me that fucking Roger Deakins didn't win 
an award until Blade Runner 2049, and he yeah, never fucked. he never won award an award for any of the Coen Brothers movies he did. You're fucking kidding me, right? Insanity. Like, yeah, you know, and and maybe maybe you know the Academy just doesn't like films like this, but like I think films like The Big Lebowski should have that should have won best cinematography there's some great cinematography there it doesn't matter what the film's about if the cinematography is great right so but that will be a really cool episode and uh, i also like to say that after that you and i will be doing an episode uh covering the palm d'Or winners at Cannes. and so i kind of going into a little i guess you know for the summer we'll do a couple awards show episodes, yeah we're just gonna you know? crush a couple yeah. of them you know and uh in so again, if you uh, have any suggestions, feel free to either come on to facebook.com slash mymoviesbetter, send us a message, or uh, join the group, and you can vote on the movies there. Or if you want, I mean, put a suggestion in a review. Yeah. And if you give us Dude, five stars, we'll cover it. Yeah, exactly. You know? And if you Venmo me $30, I'll make yeah. it win the week. Exactly, man. <laughs> and uh, as always, please remember to like and share and subscribe we're on itunes we're on google we're on spotify, everywhere spotify everything. i yeah. also want to tell uh jeremiah Geely yes to blow it out your ass what 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 did he say I told him i was gonna do that oh <laughs> <laughs> hey jeremiah blow it out blow your it ass. out your ass jeremiah suck on that <laughs> Boy, yo! But please, yeah, seriously, yeah. like, rate, review, subscribe. But also, oh, my Alexa is on. Oh hell yeah! Alexa, yet. shut up! <laughs> Alexa, thank you. She's such a good girl. She is. She said you're, you're welcome. welcome. Yeah. Wow. My Alexa cares legend. about me. So uh, on that note, thanks guys. We'll say good night, good luck, go fudge yourself, and have a good time doing it. And bye. 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 bye.